This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 433 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Wickham. Now, Nick was one of the gym owners that unified the Liverpool area gyms to stand against the second forced lockdown late last year due to COVID. The reason being, after complying the first time round, the fitness and health industry had seen the statistics published by the government showing that the gyms were not contributing significantly to the spread of COVID. 
And of course, the other side of that is that gyms are contributing to the overall health of the nation, therefore being a positive in the COVID pandemic. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, finding parkour, getting into bodybuilding and bouncing, ultimately finding himself in the drug trade, serving time in prison, but then the metamorphosis, becoming an incredibly successful gym owner and a leader in that space last year. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I love reading your feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 400 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Nick Wickham. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I also want to do a shout out to Dai, who connected us initially. So welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you, man. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And obviously, thank you to Dai for putting us together. Absolutely. All right. Well, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Liverpool, England, UK. Beautiful. Well, I'd like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, you know, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure, man. So I grew up just outside of Liverpool. So we're in the, the Liverpool city region, as you will. It's a place called uh, Morton on the, the borough of Wirral. Uh, growing up, I was a, you know, I, I had no siblings. My dad left when I was, say, two years old. Mum got pregnant with me at 15. Uh, obviously had me at 16 and we had a, a very unique relationship. It was very much, you know, more like a brother and sister relationship than it was a mother and son relationship. And, you know, I, I don't hold that against her. I don't think I would have done any better at 15 years of age. Um, but I was pretty much left to do whatever it is that I wanted to do as a kid. I was eight years old, hanging around with guys, 16, 17 years old, coming home at 11 o'clock at night. Um, as I developed into my you know, young, young adulthood, late childhood, say 11, and then into like early teens. Uh, we, it, I really struggled in school. Like I, I didn't find that I fitted into the conventional education system whatsoever. And I, I had a really difficult time in school and they struggled to control me or, or give me anything that would, you know, I could channel my energy into. And then mum started to struggle to manage me at home. So we, we ended up developing a, a an unwritten understanding where she basically let me do whatever it is that I wanted to do. But on the flip side of that, she didn't do, you know, any of her duties as a, as a mother would do. She didn't cook for me. She didn't clean for me. You know, there was no checking where I was. Um, and we, we were a poor family. We were a very poor family. It was just me and mum. She was, you know, in and out of work and food was always a struggle. And me and the guys used to used to go out and we'd go to the back of our local Italian restaurants and steal sacks of potatoes and, you know, go go to the climb over the fence at the back of our local superstores and dig through the bins for, you know, cans that had been thrown out that day. And, you know, we, we, we made it work. We were very poor. It was a tough upbringing, but we you know it was never a sad time. As strange as that sounds, we had absolutely nothing, but we were happy having nothing because, you know, we, we didn't know any better than that. Um, so we, we made the best of a bad situation. And then. Around the age of about 13, 
12, 13, I took up uh, parkour or free running. And that re- that was the first opportunity for me to really channel my energy into something that I enjoyed. Um, and how it started out was, you know, it, it was mischievous. It was, let's cause some trouble. Let's get chased by the police and see if we can get away. You know, we, we were only 12 years old at the time. And then we found on YouTube some videos uh, of some guys in France who, who would, you know, they turned this into a discipline, into a sport, into the the art of movements that they were calling parkour. Um, and, you know, we, we adopted, once we seen that there was truly something behind this other than just, you know, running away from police, um, you know, we adopted a level of discipline that I'd never had in my life before. And I traveled over to France on my own at 14. Uh, Mum was completely unaware that I'd even left. Um, I had somebody, I had, I had one of my older friends take me down to London and pretend to be a guardian of mine to get me onto the, the Eurostar to get me to Paris. Um, and when I got to Paris, I met some guys from North Carolina and some of the local guys uh, from just south of Paris, They're the original founders of the sport. And then I, I trained with them for a week. And, and their mentality was, it was so much discipline. They were, they were, you know, they were significantly older than me. They were late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I'd have been 14, 15 at this point. And, you know, I was expecting to get there and we'd just be doing everything that we'd been doing at home, jumping rooftops, climbing up high walls. And the first day that I got there, they had me doing walking lunges, squats, press-ups, you know, full body conditioning. And this was, this, this level of discipline was so new to me. And because these guys were so talented, I, I, you know, I felt the need to adopt that and take it home with me. So coming back to England, I, I adopted this new level of discipline, this new approach to to exercise and training. Um, and we were one of the we were one of the first parkour free running teams in the country, in the world, in fact. Uh, and we we banded together, you know, a good group of guys, and we brought in a, a local photographer and said, look would you fancy shooting some photos and videos of us? You get something diverse for your portfolio and we get some professional images. Uh, and then another guy I met on the, on the internet on a, on like a gaming forum. Uh, I had him develop a website for us. So at, at say age 15, we had this professional looking website and all these professional looking images. And we looked significantly more experienced than we were. Uh, and then we started to get picked up by really big brands, um, you know, Nike, Adidas, Red Bull, um, you know, and we were shot into the limelight quite early, you know, we were exposed to a lot quite young and, you know, we were, we were flying business class with some of these big companies at like 16, 17 years of age. And we're fumbling our way through this, trying to learn the business side of things as we go along. Um, but it, it really gave me a, a sense of discipline and a sense of purpose that without, you know, I, I fear, you know, they're going down a much different path at that age. And, you know, I got to travel the world very young and we and I, we went absolutely everywhere. And I, I met people from, you know, every culture, every race, every religion, you know, the, the diversity that we experienced really propelled our maturity. And, you know, we, we at 16, 17 years of age, we had the the mentality of a, of a you know, a man in his late 20s. And I, I'm really, really grateful for that because obviously that that's become very useful later in life to have that experience behind me. Um and that, that, that was kind of my life until I was um, 19. That would have taken me to about 2009 when injury eventually took me out. And uh, my knees just said, no, no more. We can't do this. Beautiful. Who were the uh, the French guys that you studied with, the founders? Yeah, so the, uh, there's, there was five or six guys that we met. And they were 
all part of a, a team called the Yamakazi. There was David Bell and some others. They all lived in this this tiny little town called Lys, uh, south of Paris. Uh, and they were these guys were the best of the best at the time. And they were, you know, doing adverts for BBC. They were doing movies with Luke Besson and you know, so to get there, you know, not only were we starstruck, but we also had the opportunity to learn from the original guys. And and they, as I say, the mentality that they had was, you know, it was discipline. It was the art of movement. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't boys just messing around, jumping on rooftops. There was a real purpose to it. There was a real, you know, they, they seen it as art more than they did exercise or, you know, a hobby. And, and you know, to be exposed to something like that at that age, I, you know, that was exactly what I needed at that, at that time. Now, one of David's friends was one of the black um, parkour. Sebastian. Yeah, wasn't he the guy that did the opening sequence in that the Bond film, that amazing free-running sequence? Yes, so uh, Sebastian is, I mean, he's London-based, Sebastian now. Uh, but yes, he did the scene at the start of Casino Royale for James Bond. That's but it right. Was actually, it was actually a, a friend of ours, Curtis, who did the stunt doubling for Sebastian on that movie. Why he didn't do it himself, I'm not too sure. But yeah, there, there, there is there is a little bit more to that. But yeah, the, the, the entire scene was super interlinked and the community elements of, of um, the parkour scene was, was so pure. And we had, you know, nobody was interested in anything materialistic. There was no ego. There was no competition. It was, you're going to do better today than you did yesterday. And if you do better than me, I'm happy for you that you got better. And that was the environment that we we really thrived in. And you know, we 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 had a we were on an internet forum at the time. You know, this predates Facebook or whatever else. Now we just had a, an internet forum, freerun.co.uk, uh, I think it was. Um, and there was people from all over the world. It was just this one single hub because it was such a, a small sport at the time. So we all we all liaised on this forum, and there was kind of like a, an open door Airbnb policy that we had going on. You know, there was there was no payments involved, but it was. Okay, like for example, um, my friend Duncan and some of his friends, he come over from North Carolina. He stayed with us. And in return, you know, we could go over and stay with him. We had guys come over from Germany, Mexico, Paris, you name it. And it was, you know, they could come and stay with me at any time. I could go and stay with them at any time. And, you know, you find most weekends we were sardined into my bedroom. Um, you know, I didn't have a bed at the time. I just had a, a mattress, um, two mattresses on the floor. And guys would come and stay. And I'd have like, 15 guys staying in my bedroom we're all just kids and we are sardined in some sleeping on the floor some sleeping on these tired old mattresses with you know sharing a blanket over three people but we we didn't care we'd go out we'd train for 10 12 hours we'd have a great time we'd you know we'd explore you know we we play games we do drills over and over again and we'd come back and we'd sleep for just as much time as we needed to and then we'd go straight back out and train again you know it, it, the energy was so good and i, I now, one of my only regrets in life is coming away from the sport. <laughs> so when you talk about your earlier life, obviously there was an element of, I'm sure, not feeling completely loved in that family dynamic, whether it was the father that left, whether it was the mother that you know was somewhat absent. And, and we're going to talk, obviously, about the importance of exercise later in this conversation. But when you look back, how did that affect your mental health when you found that tribe, when you had those, those kind of mentor figures in the parkour world? It's like, you know, I'd gone 11, 12 years without any any proper guidance, you know, any appropriate uh, role models, anything whatsoever. And to go from 
you know, just before I found parkour, I was getting in trouble at school all the time. I was fighting all the time. Uh, there was just so much frustration and anger. And I, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time. Like I wasn't aware that I was angry. And I look back on it and it's very clear that I was, you know, I, I look at school reports of, of how violent I was in school. And it's, you know, it, it's apparent now, but at the time it just felt like normal behavior. But, you know, I was, I was turning into a bully. You know, everything was, you know, uh, aggression and, you know, the, the, the desire to just be the best and the biggest and the, and the, the toughest guy and all this. And I, I look back now and it, I, I can see it, but I couldn't see it at the time. But the, the contrast between my personality pre-parkour being this frustrated, neglected kid, if you would, to then finding this new community. And then my only goal in life was to make myself better and to make life better for those around me and help other people, you know, uh, achieve what they wanted to achieve. And I think that's that's testament to what, you know, a, a proper support network can do for somebody. Like, you know, you, your environment is everything. And I, I say this quite frequently. I truly believe that association breeds similarity. You know, if you surround yourself with five, six guys who are all negative and, you know, bitchy and whatever else you are, you know, to a degree gonna, you know, adopt those personality traits. So to, to find myself surrounded by everybody who was like-minded just by chance, by the way, like we're from all different parts of the country, but everybody seemed to have this same mindset. It was like parkour truly like lit this fire in people that they just wanted to have that, you know, like the community feeling to it. So, something that I think the, the skateboard and, you know, roller skating communities had early on, when, you know, when they were first coming up, um, you know, and it completely changed my life and, and the path that I would have gone down had I not found that, I, you know, I, I dread to think where I'd, I'd have ended up. Now, obviously, parkour was a passion for yours, and, and I read that you still did well academically in school. Were there any other career paths that you were also thinking about at the school age? No, I mean, I, I really didn't fit in. I, I spent most of my time at home on the computer gaming. We didn't really go to school. Myself and my best friend, Kyle, he had a, a very similar situation with uh, with his mum, and you know, he was basically left to fend for himself, so we we kind of supported each other and he ended up living with me from maybe age 14 onwards. We, we shared a mattress on the floor for maybe five, six years. Um, and how we, how we used to survive, we, we'd never go to school and, and school were quite laid back with this at this point. Um, and we, we play in this game online legend of Mary, it was called, it was similar to world of Warcraft, but you know, predated world of Warcraft. And we'd, we'd spend nights, conquering you know these temples and whatever else so that we could harvest gold and sell it on ebay you know so that, that that's kind of how we made do we you know we'd spend hours and hours on this game mining for ore and gold so that we could take that 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 fantasy money and sell it on ebay for you know 20 30 pounds dollars whatever it was at the time and you know as i said we had absolutely nothing so when we did get that money we made it last and we never really thought about anything career-wise and as you said I, I did do well academically and that wasn't through my conventional school education because I, I was never there I was lucky if I went to one class a month um, but when we used to sit the end of year exams I would still do really well um, you know, my, my, my family have good genetics in, in that sense uh, the generation above me are incredibly intelligent for no good reason um, you know, it's not as if they commit their time to to studying or anything else. They they are just you know they are they are primed for learning, 
Um, so I used to do well in tests, but I never really thought about anything career-wise. I quite enjoyed computers, but that was more just from the gaming side of things. Um, so I, I had no other distractions career-wise. I had no guidance from parents or family as to where I should be looking to go with education or qualifications or with a career. You know, that, that the thought never really entered my mind. And then from age 14 onwards with parkour, it was like nothing else mattered. There was no plan B. There was no exit strategy. It was just, this is me. I don't care if I make a living off it or not. I know I can live off next to nothing. If, you know, if I need to do that to, 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 to continue doing this, then that was what I was going to do. And fortunately, we, we did really well professionally with the sport because we were in so early. Um, I, I honestly don't know what I would have done if, if that hadn't been the case. Well, it's an interesting parallel because in, you know, police and in, in the fire service, when people get hurt and they have a career ending injury, it tends to, to be a real struggle mentally as well, because that's what they identified for, you know, with that, that was their dream career. Every time we come home, you know, you feel like you made a difference in the world. I had a, an injury that I rehab, so I was lucky. So I, I, I experienced it, but I got to come back, but it was, you know, it was, it was awful. So when, you, know, you had several years really immersed in parkour. You had the success emotionally with these people you were with. You had the success financially with some of these sponsors. Tell me about when when you couldn't do it anymore and how that affected you in, in, in your life and how it affected you mentally. This was the, the, the turning point for me down quite a dark path. Uh, towards the end of 2009, I think it was, uh, I was really struggling with my knees at the time. You know, they, they'd taken a lot of drops with, you know, as much as we did condition, there's only so much we could, we could condition for the 10 hours worth of impact training we were doing a day. Um, and I went to see my doctor and he said, look, you either need to take a year off and give yourself a break or you're going to need surgery and that's going to be a two-year recovery. So you can either take the year off voluntarily or you can wait until you need surgery and then you're going to need two years. Um so I, I, you know, I had no, I didn't really have a choice at the time. I was like, okay, I'm going to step away from parkour for a year. I'll keep my eye on the scene. I want to stay fit whilst I do this. So I joined uh, the local gym. This will have been the late, late 2009, early 2010. I joined the local gym. Um, and my, the, the circle in which I landed in at the time in the gym was, was so much different to what I'd experienced with parkour from being a, a, you know, a community driven, everyone needs to do better, you know, a, a aspect of training to now it was ego and vanity. And, you know, I can lift more than you can lift or I'm bigger than you are. You know, I, I fell into to quite a, a you know, a, a, an extreme bodybuilding circle just by chance, you know, and that, and that completely upset the, the, you know, the approach that I had to exercise in general. Um, so I, I very quickly started to lose my personality. I, I'd lost the community side of, of you know, the, the parkour guys as I'd stepped away. Um, you know, I, I'd lost that level of discipline because, you know, when we were going to the gym, you know, we, we're training for 60, 90 minutes. When we were out with the parkour guys, it was all day. It was 10, 11 hours long. And then, I, you know, I, I started to get into bodybuilding. Um, I started using steroids. And it, it really... It really accelerated the negative personality traits that I'd adopted at that time. So I'd gone from where I was to then focusing on image, you know, um, 
and then you know it, it really accelerated that and i found myself you know i'm in the mirror all the time you know checking myself out you know am i bigger than this guy can i lift more than that guy you know and it was a, it's once you once you once you embark on that journey of being fixated with you being better than other people you you are destined for for chaos and darkness in my opinion and i i was naive to that at the time and there wasn't a lot of information out there at the time with regards to body image or bodybuilding or steroid use or you know competitive bodybuilding and i eventually come to compete in bodybuilding in mid 2012 i competed in the the british open and i won the title of junior mr britain in 2012 um you know which, which it's a bittersweet thing when i look back on on you know on, on that day and that competition and that win because as you know as much as i won I won the show. I lost so much of my personality that, unfortunately, I have to say that I regret, you know, ever ever entering entering into the the competitive side of things, because I started to be mean to people around me. You know, my my, my ego increased, my aggression increased. You know, it, it, it I become obsessed with power and controlling people, and it went from me just being a, a gym guy to me then being a a you know, training for bodybuilding to then taking steroids to then selling steroids to fund my own steroid use to then utilizing friends that I had around the world from the parkour days to export steroids. Um, then I started working security in Liverpool city center on the clubs. I fell into darker circles again. You know, everything was then all about power and money and manipulation and aggression. Um, so then it went from selling steroids and exporting steroids to exporting harder drugs and my, my even my closest friends started to sort of disappear from my circle around me and and i didn't i didn't notice it at the time like people started drifting away from me and i just thought you're a dick that's why you're going away this is you this is all you it can't possibly be me do you know what i mean um and then you know i've got all these people around me now all these new friends if you will you know, I'm, I'm spending money on everybody. You were going to the bar and I'm buying, you know, buying the bar out, champagne, hotel rooms for everybody. And I got so lost in that sort of, you know, external validation from these people. that I didn't see what the bit, what was happening in the bigger picture. And I was losing all these people around me. And I was so convinced that they were the problem. that I didn't see it as an issue at the time. And I become even more obsessed with power. I was making tons of money at the time, but it wasn't the money that I was interested in. Like uh, even at this point now, because of the, the the life that we'd had with parkour, like we were very anti-materialism. So I still wasn't really interested in the money, but I thrived off the power that the money was giving me, that that control that it gave me over people. Um, and then uh, inevitably, I was uh, arrested for importation in the summer of 2014 for importing uh, drugs into Jersey, which is in the British Channel Islands. Um, and you know, that this is probably the best thing that could have happened to me. And it was definitely the best thing that I think could have happened. I think if, if I hadn't have been arrested at this point, there is only, you know, two things that could have happened. Either I'd ended up dead or I would have ended up with a significantly higher prison sentence. And I was arrested. I was sentenced to six years in jail and you know, I, I, I remember the moment where I realized what had happened, you know, like it was yesterday. It, it's crystal clear in my mind still. We 
once I, I got into my cell for the first time in, in Jersey, you have a, a picture board on the wall, you know, where you can put pictures of your family and, and whatever else. It's maybe the size of a, like a 50 inch television. And when I first landed, I had all these photographs sent in of the new life, you know, the champagne parties, the fancy cars, you know, the hotel rooms, everything, all, all of that. And the entire board was just covered in this lifestyle. And I, I was comfortable with that at the time. And for the first sort of three, four weeks, first month, two months, the letters are coming in from those people. We miss you so much, you know, oh, we can't wait till you come home. We're going to do this, that and the other. So obviously these guys are missing having their cash cows, you know what I mean? But I didn't see that at the time. Um, so we, we've, I've gone through this process and then sort of come month three, you know, the letters start to trickle off in volume. Um, and then letters start coming in from older friends who are, you know, concerned about how I'm getting on. They've not spoken to me in, in well over a year, 18 months, you know, just checking in, how are you doing? Um, and then I, I, I was gradually taking pictures down off the wall, maybe one, two at a time from this old lifestyle. I'm replacing them with pictures from the parkour days and places I traveled around the world and friends that I'd met. And I didn't notice it whilst I was going through the process of taking them down two at a time, two up at a time. And I just remember one day, I think this must have been like four and a half, five months in, maybe about five months. And I'd, I'd sat back in my cell and I'd looked up at the wall and it was like this sudden realization that every single photograph that I'd originally had on that wall was no longer on that wall. And everyone that was on there, and you're talking, I mean, top of my head, you're talking 35, 40 photographs, maybe maybe more, were all of my life that predated this person that I turned into, you know, when I, when I lost my personality. And that, that for me was the realization of how did I let myself become this person? How, how have I let myself lose the people around me that have been so important to me, the, the, you know, the positive influences? How have I let myself return to this? angry frustrated child that i was you know 10 years prior to this happening and from there like the, the the journey through prison you know it was positive i did a lot of positive work in the prisons i did a lot of uh you know nutritional pamphlets and that was specific to uh, prison nutrition because obviously you, you you're limited to what you can access so i wrote booklets out for the service in there of how you could tailor your diet to what was available and how you could make your limited access to exercise, you know, as best that you could. And I was doing drug awareness stuff for the, you know, the drug awareness team in there. And they, they took me to other prisons to give talks. And, you know, it, it, it turned out really positive for me in the end. And as I say, I, I think, I think me being caught and sentenced was a necessary evil for me at the time. Like I, I I'm glad it happened as crazy as that sounds. I'm really glad it happened because it enabled me to, to find the person that I was again and get back on that path of trying to help other people out. And, and that's, and that's not an entirely a, a selfless way to operate because I, I find it really rewarding when I help other people. And as much as I, as much as I would like to say it is completely selfless and I do just want to help other people, I can't deny the fact that I do get a, I get a rush off helping other people. It makes me feel happy as well. And I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong. I just think it's a mutually beneficial situation. You know, my intentions are good. And as a secondary effect, I feel fantastic when I can help somebody do something better than they did before, or I can help somebody feel a little bit better. And, you know, it, it put me in a much great, much better place. And, you know, I, I, I've seen some horrific things in the prison system and, you know, I, I've seen guys in there who shouldn't have been in there. I've seen guys who were in there, who probably should have been in there for longer. Like, you know, it, it, you see such a, a mix of people in there and not everybody is what you would think that the stereotype is, you know, like you, you, 
my only understanding of the prison system before I went in was Shawshank Redemption, prison break. You know, I, I was I was terrified. You know, this is I'm going into a place that's going to be full of crazy, violent murderers and, and you know, rapists and everything else. And I, I found that, you know, if you look hard enough, you find some really good people in there, you know, like people make mistakes. Good people make mistakes as well. It's not it's not. You can't tie everybody with that wrong, uh, without you know, without one brush. And you do get people that will will match your stereotypes of you know what what a prisoner would look like, or you know the the common stereotype. But I met some really good people, and we made the best of a bad situation, and we helped out a ton of people. We had a lot of prison policies changed for the better in terms of nutrition and exercise. Uh, you know, I, I'm happy that the time that I spent in there was you know productive and it was positive, and it gave me a chance to reflect. Don't get me wrong. I wish it was shorter than the three years that I spent in there. Um, you know, I, I'd already sort of had that realization of five or six months. If they'd have let me out in another six months, that would have been fantastic. But, you know, we we, we can't pick and choose. And since I come home uh, in the end of 2017, I've just had this urge to do better and do more because, I mean, we find this with the COVID situation now. People don't really know how good they've got it or what really matters to them in life until it's taken away. And I, I had that reminder and it, 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 the little things that you would probably never do, you really want to do because you can't, you know, you have no choice. And I, I said to myself, the day that I get out, I'm never taking another day for granted. Every hour that I'm going to be awake is going to be productive or, or enjoyable. You know, I'm not going to waste any more time. And I've kept to that since the day I got out. I've been home now three and a half years and every single day has been productive. And, and you know, I, I'm super proud of what, I'm, what I've achieved. I've reconnected with people who I lost when I lost my personality. And we're in a, a better place than we ever have been. And, and you know, it, it's quite a success story for me personally. But, you know, I know for most of the lads that I was in there with, like, that there is no real re re rehabilitation in the, in the UK prison system. I'm, you know, I'm not too sure about the US. But, you know, these guys are destined to fail from the moment that they step out. We have a our reoffending rate here is over 50%, you know, so you, and that's only the people that get caught more than 50% of people. Once they leave prison here, get caught doing something and come back. And that's because in my opinion, at least there's no proper rehabilitation. You know, the concept of prison is your punishment is you being removed some, from society. Your time within prison is meant to uh, the, the intention, at least the way that I understand it is that you are to be rehabilitated and prepared for your reintegration into society. And you just don't see that whatsoever in our prison system here. And it, it, it's, it's sad that these guys will leave prison and no one will give them a job because they've been to prison. They've, you know, they've had no new skills taught to them whilst in prison. And, you know, they're, they're set up to fail from the minute you step out. Chances of you coming back are, are really high. And, you know, I, I think we can do a, a whole lot of, a whole lot better to do that. But I mean, sorry, I'm going off a little bit there. The, the, I, I appreciate things now more than I ever did is what I'm saying. Even even the, the very small things like just being able to go outside and take a walk, which people are, are now starting to appreciate because of COVID. You know, I, I've got friends who now go on long walks who've never never been for a walk in the last 10 years. Um, so I think some positives do come from them situations of people losing everything or losing access to things. And, you know, that was my, my kind of take home from the whole experience of, you know, appreciate what we've got because, you know, we really have no idea what we take for granted. Beautiful. Well, thank you for walking us through. And there's there's several things I kind of want to pull out of that. Um, when you talk about the prison system, I've had some guests on here 
from Norway, some guests from the state of Oregon that have got a lot more progressive models that are starting to push, you know, where it is rehabilitation, where rather than being, you know, isolated in, in concrete buildings, for example, like in Norway, you're on an island with houses and you live with other, other prisoners and you work and you get educated and, you know, it's, it's, putting that tribe back you got pulled from your tribe when you got hurt from parkour and obviously it wasn't something that you were deliberately aware of and then you got pulled into a very negative tribe you know very very toxic tribe which led you then to to prison and then once you're there you know sadly a lot of the tribalism that we see is based on color or creed and you know and that's that can be a very negative thing too the other thing though that i talk about a lot and we touched on before we started recording is the you know the prohibition of drugs and how many people end up in prison purely because they're addicts now it's interesting because you were you know at some point smuggling so you were at that point a part of the illicit drug trade that i think should still you know be be punished whether it's you know dealing or or smuggling but with you you know using whether it's steroids or anything else and then also being on the supply side what is your view having having gained from it through the financial side and then being being penalized for it actually going to prison what is your perspective on the prohibition of drugs and you know criminalizing addiction and putting all that power and money in the hands of some of the 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 least desirable men and women we have in our communities that's a that's a really interesting question, and I you know I quite like discussing this topic as I'm sure you do yourself. I I think prohibition. I mean, we we've only got to look to the U.S. You know, with with the alcohol prohibition. You know, the early 1900s. You know, we they they seen. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an increase in demand once it was prohibited. You know, people people want to try things that they're not allowed to have, and the and the the major issue with criminalizing drugs is that. You know, it, it prohibits us from having a wider conversation on risk. It prohibits us from, you know, being able to have a quality control system in there. You know, the, the, a, a good portion of, you know, hospitalizations from drugs, are, you know, they come from diluted products that have been mixed, you know, and, and that could be prevented with quality control. And I, I don't think that we should legalize, but I do think that we should decriminalize. And I think we should differentiate between sentences that we give to violent crime and sentences that we give to non-violent crime. And I mean, there's been whispers of it here in the UK of getting rid of prison sentences that are under 12 months because it causes the amount of damage that it causes to the person. Uh, and say, for example, you know, you're, you're dealing marijuana, small time, you get given 11 months in prison. It costs our it costs us, it costs the public about £50,000 per prisoner per year. So straight away, we've got a £50,000 cost to society. Then we have that person pulled away from their partner, their wife, their children, their job, which they'll lose and very unlikely that they'll get back again. You know, people are then defaulting on their mortgages, on their bills. You know, they're, they're separated from their children. Their children are then suffering with mental health issues, you know, and they, you know, they don't have any kind of role model at home or, you know, any kind of support structure or anyone that can provide. And the damage that we're doing to society by criminalizing personal use and drug addiction, I, I think it drastically outweighs, you know, the, the, the cost of us decriminalizing, you know, a, a, a portion of drugs or even all of drugs and, and pushing, 
pushing nationally a, a you know a, a change of narrative to education and to you know awareness and away from demonizing people that get themselves you know stuck on these substances and you know it it, it is a it's a difficult process and we know how you know from from a, a neurochemical perspective we know how addictive these drugs are so to say to somebody you're a bad person because you won't stop drugs it's it's not that simple and if we're going to continue to have alcohol and tobacco legal you know I, I think we at the very least should be having a wider conversation on the you know the the, the prohibition of, of drugs in general yeah no i agree completely and i think that Johan Hari who's a guy I had on who wrote an amazing book, um, Chasing the Scream. And he talks about, you know, the origin of prohibition and, uh, Harry Anslinger and Billie Holiday and all these, these extremely powerful stories that highlight that it was really initiated on, on racism. It's truly what it is. And job justification. As you said, alcohol prohibition had been a complete failure. He was in that same office. And so, you know, basically with the whole reefer madness and all that stuff, um, initiated the drug prohibition and then that was forced onto other countries like australia and the uk and other areas you know politically once they started here in the us it has been an epic failure and i can say as a firefighter paramedic coming from england working in america the number of young men and women that i've seen you know and, and older but i mean especially the tragic kind of drug drug related crime and violence you know the 15 year olds i've pulled a sheet over in the middle of a, a park you know with holes in their body and and the the prostitutes that we found dead in a dumpster. I mean, the 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 ripple effect of this has been horrendous. And Johan frames it perfectly. Addiction is a mental health issue. You know, it's not a crime. It's it's as you said. Let's just walk you through yours. I mean, I want to touch on on the bouncing in a minute and 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 that that element too. But you take a child that wasn't given a good environment, and of course, there's two sides to the coin. There's ownership, and then there's environment. Um, but you know, these, these young children, I always point, you know, like a kindergarten, none of those kids want to live under a bridge. None of those kids want to sell their body for, for money. None of those kids want to push drugs. None of those kids want to be morbidly obese. They just want to have fun and play. But what happens to them in those formative years steers them towards certain routes. And a lot of these men and women find themselves in addiction. A lot of our veterans find themselves addicted. A lot of our firefighters and police officers and doctors and nurses find themselves as addicts. And to view that as a crime drives them into the shadows. And they find themselves in these horrendous places, you know, the victims of violence and sexual abuse and murder because they had the audacity to have a shitty childhood. And yes, some of us had a shitty childhood and still managed to come out okay. But a lot of people didn't. And like you said, it, it feels good to be, to be the person that reaches out and helps other people. So to me, putting addiction in the hands of the medical community, the mental health community, the, the actual, you know, medical community, having safe injection sites and, and mental health counseling and job creation for these people rather than throwing them in prison for 50,000 pounds per person per year. Is, is absolute insanity. And the more we have this conversation, the more I think that we're going to push towards a, a proactive solution. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're essentially inviting crime into the conversation, aren't we, by, by criminalizing things. And, you know, you, you, you see it with, um, you know, what happened when, the, you know, the, the Italian mafia adopted, you know, uh, transport and drugs and everything else. The, the, the violent crime that's attached to those drugs goes through the roof. Like you are, I mean, I had, I've had this conversation with guys when I was in prison who say, you know, 
I hate the police, fuck the police, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you understand what it is that you're actually saying? I said, the, re the reason that you even were able to do what you're doing is because it's prohibited, because the police are there. If you remove the police from the situation, you're out of a job. You, you know, you can't sell. The thing that gives these drugs the value is the fact that they are prohibited. And that makes it appealing to gangs and violent people to then get involved. You remove that from the situation. You take you take away the the scarcity of supply and, you know, how it comes through and the, and the criminal networks that it comes through. And all of a sudden, these criminal entities are not involved. And that's where the majority of, of the, the heavy gang violence comes from. Like you completely take that out of the picture. And then, as you say, we see a lot of ex-military and, and services turn into these drugs. And that isn't because they, they, they know the consequences of these drugs, especially like our healthcare workers. They know it's going to cause them damage. But the reason they're doing it is a coping mechanism because there isn't other avenues open for them to discuss their mental health issues, you know, their to properly, you know, address their PTSD. They are just looking for a coping mechanism. And if we put better systems in place where they were able to access, you know, the, the, these kind of channels, then, you know, you, you're, you're taking away, you know, you're, you're possibly preventing a significant portion of drug use by offering a, a, a healthier alternative to, you know, people being able to cope with things that they've experienced. Yeah. Well, and an important point as well, just to, to tag onto what you said, which is, is, I think, a lesser known element is firstly, um, the illicit drug trade funds terrorism. So I've had people on here that have been deployed to Afghanistan that have talked about the opium, opium fields out there that find their, their way back over here. So, you know, cutting the head off the snake, supply and demand. If there's no user anymore of illicit drugs, illegal drugs, then we're not funding all this horrendous stuff, you know, that we're seeing in the Middle East. We're not creating these these this, these cartels on the border. If we're talking about all drugs, again, complete drug prohibition, not just picking and choosing which one. And then the other side is you mentioned our veterans. Right now in the UK and I'm assuming Australia and definitely here in the US, some of the best treatments that I've seen is MDMA guided therapy and psilocybin and some of these areas, even for TBI. These men and women have to go to a different fucking country to get the treatment for the injuries they sustained fighting for their own country. So even from that lens, it makes no sense. It is. Uh, I, am, I, am I right in saying, is it Colorado that are taking a slight shift on psilocybin now? Are they, are they, I, I read something, I don't know, maybe in the last six months about them, are they decriminalizing it for medical purpose? I think it might be Oregon, but yes, I believe is that it? they're pushing that way. I mean, it's a good shift. You, I mean, you guys have seen I mean, uh, albeit it is a slow process, but I think, you know, in, in a handful of states over there, you have seen a a positive change, haven't you? We, we really are struggling in the UK. And I think, you know, once you guys, I mean, do, do you think it will ever be changed on a, a federal level? But, you know, the thing, the, the substances that are now being decriminalized and, then, you know, it's for, for whatever reason, do you think that will reach federal level? I, I think the only way we can do it is yeah, what I talk about a lot on the show is getting people educated and angry. I think we talked about that last time. That, that's it. If, if we go to, to quote unquote lawmakers, it's never going to happen because their pockets are being filled by the people that don't want it to happen. There's a lot of money made in the war on drugs. So you have to get the people, you know, the vote with their dollar, as it were. So when we talk later about McDonald's, you know, you want to you want to change the way the nation eats. You stop shopping at the shitty places. You know, that's how you do it. So I think it's the same with this. The more people understand, the more we destigmatize addiction and we get people to understand that it's a mental health issue 
and they're not scum and we stop using words like bum and you know hooker and all these you know dehumanizing labels that we put on human beings that found themselves in a in a bad place then absolutely we can force change and just as you guys did in liverpool i mean you're we're going to get on that but that's a perfect example when enough angry people band together and unite you can absolutely force change but if we have the lens that oh we you know the government are our leaders and and we work for them which is completely backwards then no and that's kind of how it is now we got to you know that we the people as the constitution starts you know that that's what we've got to remember we the people they work for us and if we're seeing all this death and destruction and when are we going to draw a line in the sand and say enough is enough this needs to change you tried your prohibition it was shit <laughs> we got to do something else <laughs> fingers crossed i mean we, we, we can hope can't we and, and you know I, I think we will see a shift over the next sort of five years or so and as you say everything you know a, a good a good portion of it at least is stigma if someone recovers from an al- alcohol dependency you know, they are, they're applauded. Well done. But if, you know, if you, if you're recovering from a, an opioid addiction or, you know, a, you name any other substance, you are immediately demonized and and seen as dangerous and a, a liability to society. And it's like, well, I, how, how can you, how can you say that? You know, how, how can you not, how can you see it differently when somebody recovers from one substance versus, you know, not, not seeing it the same when they recover from another substance that is potentially potentially more addictive. Therefore, their recovery has been significantly harder for them to to process. You know, they they in my opinion, they should be at the very least equally acknowledged for the efforts that they put in, and they've come out the other side. And you know, we really really need to get rid of the stigma, as you say. And that, you know, I, I I think things are turning you know more positive. I think it's going to take a long time. And as you say, we've just got to keep banging that drum and keep you know driving it home. Education remove the stigma and you know with with a bit of luck and with the right people behind it and with the right people in power maybe um you know i think we'll see some positive change in the coming years yeah i think i think we're at the beginning of a paradigm shift in a lot of areas so well speaking of that so i want to get to you know you investing in a gym and then that 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 element but prior to you going you you were bouncing you know you were you were in the uh, the drug smuggling trade. What was it within you that really forced that change? That took you from that that mindset that you found yourself back into that kind of parkour mindset that you'd love prior. I think it was my own happiness, to be honest. And you know, we 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 find ourselves depressed a lot of the time, and it can be difficult to step back and be objective and say, right, it, you know, it will most likely be because of this. And I was in a really bad place when I, when I went to prison. I mean, you know, but besides the, the obvious situation and I just to jump back a little bit, I remember my, my first week in prison and I'd gone in and what they had at this point, as far as I understood it. And as far as the, the legal representative had said to me, I was looking at a maximum of maybe 18 months, two years. So I was trying to get my head around the fact that I I was going to face this time. And then I got a knock on my cell door, you know, Wickham solicitors on the phone or an advocate, as they call it in Jersey. Uh, They want to speak to you. And I I goes to the phone and my, my solicitor says to me, my lawyer says to me, there's been some additional charges added to your case. Um, It's not just class B anymore. It's now class A. There's, there's two counts of importation of class A 
And, you know, I was naive to the prison system and how it worked at the time. And I, I said, OK, you know, what does that change? Does that change how long I'm looking at? You know, what, what's the situation? He said, well, you know, as we said, we were originally thinking you were looking at 18 months to two years. You're now looking at a maximum of 14 years. And, um, you know, my, my head fell apart. And, you know, I, I've come back to my, my cell. And I always remember the moment. It's, it's sort of a, a, an odd one that sticks with me. I remember having this plastic blue bowl. It must have been breakfast time. And I had my, my Kellogg's cornflakes in there and I'm I'm crying my eyes out into my bowl of cornflakes because of the news that I've just got. But I'm I'm so hungry because obviously the the the, the food portions in prison are, are you know the diet, they're very they're insufficient in both volume and nutrients. But I'm crying my eyes out into my cornflakes and as I, as I'm eating it, I could taste the salt from my tears. So I remember crying and laughing at the same time, and that's just one of the moments that that, that stuck with me. Um, you know, and that took some processing, you know, the, the jump from a small sentence to a bigger sentence. And then I was cold turkey from steroids. You know, I'd stopped completely, which, you know, isn't the, the, the standard procedure. I didn't get access to a, a post psychotherapy that I needed because there is so much stigma attached to bodybuilding and steroids that there is no wider discussion. There's no education on it. And if, if the prison system and the prison that I was in had been aware of the process and what drugs to give me to bring me back to normal, I'd have been fine. However, they said to me, I, I said, look, I need a post-cycle therapy. I've done this for many years. I know what I need. My, my hormones are flatlined. My testosterone had got dropped. You know, my synthetic and natural levels had dropped to zero. My estrogen levels were through the roof. I was crying all the time. I felt suicidal. I said, look, I just need these medications to get my natural system back to where it, where it should be, and I'll be fine. And they said, no, we can't give you that. That you know, it's not written that that's what those drugs are prescribed for, but we can give you antidepressants. I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I'm depressed. I have a, a hormone imbalance or, or you know, deficiency. I, I just need the medication that I need, and I'll be fine. Anyway, it puts me on antidepressants for four or five months. Um, you know, I, I had a rough ride. I had a rough experience with antidepressants, um, and then my my levels still didn't come up. I still felt super depressed and eventually five months in they gave me the medication i needed that i'd asked for within three weeks they took my bloods i was back to normal so they put me through five months of hell for no reason whatsoever and it, it it was you know coming out the it was probably coming out the other side of that when i said i had that sort of picture moment seeing the picture board and it was the realization of how depressed that I'd felt not just as I'd come to prison, but in the year leading up to prison, I was so angry all the time and I, I didn't understand it. And I, as I say, the, the, the turning point for me was seeing that and then being able to, to correlate the way that I was feeling to the people that I had around me and the, pro, the approach that I was taking to life. Um, and I, I always remember re-remembering a, a time from when I was when I first started parkour, uh, a good friend of mine, Daniel Illabacker is his name. He's one of the, the more famous in the, in the parkour world. He's done everything everywhere. Um, it, it, in my opinion, possibly the best athlete in the world in our, in our industry. Um, but he, he comes from a religious background, a religious family that, you know, they're Christian, you know, they have good morals. I mean, I, I'm not rigid, religious personally, but, uh, Daniel's family were very religious and, I was going through a bad time as I come into the, the parkour scene and me and him were sort of the the main male leaders of our community. Uh, he was a little bit older than me and I, I always remember feeling like I, I felt in a really dark place. Um, this is just as we were getting into things and he said, Nick, come and meet me. This was on MSN Messenger, if you remember MSN. He's like, you know, come and meet me and we'll... So we climbed to the top of this this high building near our home. 
we sat on the top and I, I, I said, Daniel, I said, you know, all due respect, man. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking for religious guidance. He's like, no, 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 Nick. He's like, no, it's, you know, just, just listen to what I have to say. And he said to me, you know, I was expressing how down I felt and how depressed I felt and how my, my mental health was really low. And I was only young at the time, but I was mature. I was mature. And he said, I want you to try something for me. I want you to go out of your way to be nice to everybody. He said, even the people that aren't nice to you, I want you to go out of your way to be nice to everybody, be kind, make an effort for people and just see how you feel. And I'm like, why? You know, why would I be nice to somebody who's not particularly nice to me? He said, trust me, try it. What have you got to lose? I was, okay, whatever. So I gave it a shot. And all of a sudden, my, my, I adopted that outlook on life and my whole, you know, everything around me started to change. I mean, maybe it was coincidence, I don't know. But everything seemed more positive and people were, you know, we were reflecting that positivity back at me. More opportunities were coming up. You know, I was finding myself in a much better situation just by changing the way that I approached life and other people. And then when I had that moment in prison, when I seen the board, it took me back to that memory I had with Daniel on top of that roof. And I was like, okay, why not? You know, what, what can I lose from adopting that, that, you know, that approach again? So I'm looking at the board. I see my old friends. I see Daniel on there. That takes me back to that memory. And I'm like, Maybe if I try that again, maybe if I try and change the way that I am with other people and my, my approach to people, because, you know, at the time I was, as I say, I was working club security. I had a, you know, a skinhead. I look like a mean guy. I'm snarling at everybody all the time. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge dude. Um, and don't get me wrong that, you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a fighter, but I looked the part and, you know, it, it, it's, so I, I grew my hair, you know, I, I, I have a, a softer look. I was a walk around smiling rather than snarling. I, I, this is where I started, you know, making an effort for other people again. And that, it, it completely transformed my mind state. And it was, like I say, it was the reflection on that moment with Daniel and that re-adoption of, you know, treating people positively and taking a more positive outlook on life that really took me back to the the person that I was in that parkour community and that, you know, that, that, that sense of community. Um, and I, and I make sure that I'm consciously, you know, pushing that into my life at every opportunity now. And, you know, it, it, it works for me. That's all I can say. Well, that's amazing. There's a couple of things I want to pull out from that. Firstly, I've made this observation before. Doing nice things feels good. There's an intrinsic reward system in the human body. And when you're a dick to someone, it feels terrible. Like, you know, I've reacted and when someone's cut me up or whatever, and even though it was justified the reaction it doesn't feel good to be angry to be pissed off to you know to have cheated on you know whatever it is whereas when you do like you, you touched on earlier when you do something kind for someone else there's almost that selfish element as well because you do get rewarded so it's it's funny that it's such a hard sell to just be nice to other people when clearly i mean pretty much every religious doctrine says the same thing like if you go out and do good things i mean you know you 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 feel that there's an immediate reward you you hold the door for someone and they smile and say thank you you know it's you're not doing it for that but you also get that reward as well yeah and people are more inclined to want to spend time with you and more inclined to want to offer you opportunities you know that th there is so many benefits from being kind to other people that extend beyond making them feel good you know you're a more inviting person you're more likely to have more opportunities come to you and you know i, I don't buy into the, the the secret type thing of you know wish it and it will come upon you kind of thing but if you're taking a positive approach and you're being kind to people and you're the type of person that people want to spend time with you're going to find yourself in a happier more positive environment and you're going to find 
more opportunities come your way because more people want to be involved with you. Do you know what I mean? And it, it's negativity, in my opinion, is like a cancer. It, once it gets a hold of you and you allow it to, it spreads and it will eat you alive. And, you know, people don't really understand that. And they, they are, as you say, it's a hard sell to people. It was a hard sell to me at the time, you know, just be nice, just be kind. And it's like, no, what, you know, that, that's, that's, what's, what's that crap, liberal crap? Do you know what I mean? I, I'm not interested in doing that. And, you know, it, there's a lot that can be said for it. And I think even, even if we looked at the, the psychological process of being positive with people, that I, I am absolutely certain there will be a link in, you know, how your, your, your brain is firing when you're being negative and, you know, what, what hormones are released as a result of that versus you being kind and decent with people. And it, you know, internally it just, you just feel so much better about yourself and everybody wins. There's there's no, there's no valid arguments against why you, why you shouldn't be that way. No, no. And again, you know, you look at the prophets of all these different religions, they did the same thing. I don't remember them saying build a giant, you know, building and just sing songs about me. I remember them doing nice things in the community and not being prejudiced and all these things that, you know, kindness comes from. But it's funny you said about The Secret because I I heard about that film and finally watched it probably about three or four months ago. And I was kind of struck the same way as, as you touched on where I was expecting them to be like, oh, you, you manifest and you think of good things, you do good things and good things come back. But it was like, yeah, and I dreamt, I, I visualized I was going to have this new car and I'm like, wait, this is all material, you know, materialistic shit. This doesn't seem to be the message yeah. that, that you should be saying. Like, as you said, it's not about envisioning, you know, envisioning the diamond necklace you've always wanted. It is just about envisioning being a better person. And I've seen this so often with a lot of guests that have been through very, very dark times. Once they process that and then they start being able to use their story to help people, that helping element, that altruistic element becomes incredibly healing for the individual as well. One, one, one million percent. And I, I don't know whether that, that book and that concept is written with good intentions or not. It's difficult to say. And as you say, there is a, an emphasis on the, on the material, which is, which is bizarre. And it lacks context. In my opinion, if you take 10,000 people who wished in their head, they were going to be CEO of a big company, you're going to find one in that 10,000 that did that. And you're going to get them in for an interview. Does that mean that that's why they got there? Or is it because of the the work ethic that they have? Is it because of the approach that they have to life? Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's it's difficult without context to actually see what's going on in front of you. And, and you know, the, the, the takeaway message from that, if you take it with a pinch of salt of luck, just, just, you know, picture better things, be positive, you know, like picture where you want to be, but then work hard to get there. And I can completely get behind that. You know, once we take the, the fantasy element away from it, you know, it, it is a good message. It 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 lacks context, as as I say, and it lacks instruction. In my opinion, of you know, you 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 haven't just got to wish it or want it. You know, you have to work for it as well, and you have to be in that that positive mindset. But if you're telling people that if you just wish it and want it, then it's you know you're going to manifest it. You're you're setting people up and giving them unrealistic expectations. You know what I mean? And that 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 is the that's where it gets a little bit muddied for me, but like like we said the the the, the take home from that is you know just just if you are kind to people people are likely to be kind back that's common sense if you're a nice person people are going to want to work with you that's common sense you know there, there's no magic involved that's just us as human beings you know we 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 want to be around people with good energy you know like how, how many of your friends who are super miserable do you go i really want to hang out with that guy today for good energy you may say i want to hang out with them because i want to put them in a better place 
but they're not the type of people that you want to feed off. And, you know, this is just common sense. And as you say, it should not be a hard sell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one more area before we move forward in, in, in the gym ownership side, you touched on cycling off the steroids. And that's another very pertinent thing that is a, is a real issue in shift workers. So obviously, police, fire, doctors, nurses, all those those professions where I see a huge, huge, huge you know, majority of the population has very, very low T. So I'm glad that you brought that up because the connection between low hormonal balances and mental health is huge. Now, people don't realize that sleep deprivation destroys T levels. And I, I'll, I'll challenge you now. You find a police officer or a firefighter in the UK or doctor or someone that works, you know, shifts, especially nights, and find out, you know, where, where do you where do you land on that T scale for your age? I guarantee you they're going to be in that bottom 25 percentile. And it and it, the easy fix is that we give these people more sleep. But understanding that that is a huge contributor to, to poor mental health as well, I think is a very, very important point to put out there. Yeah, and I, I think this is something that really needs to be discussed more in terms of how hard we work our services, our police and our, and our medical services. We are pushing them to do longer shifts with shorter breaks. You know, their the pay is in such a way that they need to do as much overtime as possible. And these are the people that we're putting forward to protect our communities, to serve our communities, to, you know, surgeons, doctors. And, and you know, I don't know if you've seen much of uh, docu- Dr. Matthew Walker, the uh, sleep scientist. He works out of uh, Cambridge University here. Um, and he advocates, you know, sleep is essential and you need a minimum of seven hours. And if you think that you can function 100% at less than seven hours, he said, you're, you're kidding yourself, basically. He said, there is a, a rare genetic mutation that only, you know, 0.00 whatever percent of the population have, which means they can function on less than seven hours. He said, but the chances of you having that genetic mutation is the same as you being hit by lightning twice. He said, so it's absolutely essential. But now we have doctors and surgeons that are doing 12-hour shifts you know, they're doing, you know, residency or, you know, I forget the exact names where they're just taking short naps between operating on, on people and trying to save lives. And he says for every, you know, for every 10% less sleep you get below seven hours, your cognitive ability drops by like 30%. It's huge. And that that's just your cognitive ability. And as you say, your, your hormone imbalance is absolutely horrific if you're not getting sufficient sleep. And these are the conditions that we're pushing onto police, firefighters, surgeons, you know, doctors, nurses. This is terrifying. These are the people that we are trusting to protect and serve our communities, but we're not, we're forcing them into a situation where they're having to deprive themselves of sleep just to make ends meet or just to ensure they can, you know, tick the box of the amount of hours required to work. And, you know, nobody really seems to be talking about this whatsoever that, you know, in mainstream media. And that is absolutely terrifying to think that we're, operating our public services, you know, in, in, in such a, a detrimental way to the health of those who were serving. Yeah. Well, I remember growing up because, I mean, when I was tiny, I wanted to be a firefighter. And um, very long story short, in school, they told me I was colorblind. I can't be a pilot, can't be a firefighter. So I wrote it off for years and years, which is why I wasn't a fireman or a medic in, in the UK. Um, but I remember them being on strike. I remember the military fire department, you know, stepping in while, while they were doing that. And, and, my personal experience of the NHS has always been incredible to the point where 
my grandfather was with uh obviously covered the NHS but he we they paid for Bupa for years the private you know um health insurance as well and Bupa basically priced them out so when they got to the point where they actually needed the healthcare they couldn't even afford it anymore which i thought was disgusting but he got cancer at 99 years old i mean the guy guy probably would have been a hardcore parkour athlete himself cuz he <laughs> he fell off a step ladder in his garage at 97 98 from a you know six foot ladder and just just had bruises like I mean wow. the guy was amazing, um, but the care I saw him get through the NHS, you know the 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 home doctors and nurses visits they set up you know hospital bed when he got sicker, after he passed away obviously they 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 helped take care of of um, you know getting him to the funeral home and then they visited my grandmother for another couple of weeks after that. I tell people here, it would, it's like a million dollar service if we'd had it privately here. I mean, it was incredible. So what breaks my heart as a, you know, as an Englishman living in the, the UK, excuse me, in the US is I've seen the NHS cut and cut and cut and cut by these, you know, by these politicians. I mean, that's what it is. Um, and the same with police and same with fire. And then, which we're going to get to in a minute, then you see the COVID thing happen and everyone's up in arms like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we can't cope. You know, COVID is so bad. And it's like, no, it, it, COVID is bad. But the reason that these poor men and women in the NHS and fire and police are, are struggling is because you've fucking taken away support for decades and they are now the absolute, you know, shadow of what they were in the seventies and eighties when they were first put in place they are and it, it it's tragic to see and it's also very disappointing and i would even call it insulting that our government here in the uk now is encouraging people to protect the nhs and save the nhs and stand on your doorsteps and clap for the nhs and you know when you when you look at how much has been cut over the last 10 years with the current government that sits as you say in, in the 70s the 80s and the 90s we had somewhere in the region of 300,000 hospital beds um, and today we have closer to 100,000 and our population has increased by the best part of 10 million. So we've, we, you know, we've taken away 60% of our beds, increased 10 million in population. We have 90,000 job vacancies. And, and you know, the, 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 the saddest thing of all of it, in my opinion, is the majority of the staff in there would be earning more in McDonald's than they would, you know, pr- protecting the nation's health. And, you know, they, they have been knocked back year on year for pay rises and for injections, for, for financial injections. And, you know, we, we've seen, I mean, you, you'll have seen it obviously being, you know, originally from the UK. Um, the, the narrative over the last 12 months here has been stay home because you have to protect the NHS and you have to save the NHS. Now, they've had us clapping on our doorsteps for the, for the public health service. But then, you know, I share a video on my Instagram of not, not two years ago, I think it were, where a proposal was put forward to increase pay in line with inflation, I think for, for the nurses uh, of our, our NHS. And it was knocked back on a majority vote by the current government that sits and they all stand up and applaud the fact that this has been knocked back. So they will stand up and applaud the fact that we won't even raise the wage to match uh, in inflation. And they'll applaud for that, but they want us, the people, to stand on our doorsteps and applaud for that same service that they have been butchering for the best part of a decade and refuse to put any money in whatsoever. And, and you know, it, we see no emphasis on prevention. You know, we, we 
I mean, the, the, the US is exactly the same in, in the UK in, in this respect. The condition of our nation's health leading up to this pandemic was just a ticking time bomb. Like, it's not as if we didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, history tells us that, you know, on a long enough time scale, we were going to see another pandemic, just like this will not be the last one. We know the link between, you know, the likes of obesity and compromised immune systems. But we've allowed our country, and I, I think the U.S. stats are even worse than ours, to be 60% or near 60% of us are obese. We've got, uh, sorry, uh, overweight, over 35% are obese. And now, you know, we, we take that into consideration, you know, stat-wise, we've got 35, 30% or so obese, 60% overweight. We know that being obese increases your chance of being hospitalized with COVID by 113%. It increases your chance of critical illness from COVID by 48%. We know that from the, the ICU stats that over 60% of those who are in ICU critically ill with COVID are obese. And we've known this for decades. We've known this link for decades and we, we, we've allowed it to get out of control. You know, we've done no national push on, you know, better nutrition or education of nutrition and exercise. We have created this monster. We've created this beast. And as, as you say, you know, COVID is, is it, you know, it's been a serious problem. Could it have been significantly, you know, less harmful and less severe? Of course it could have. And we've known this for years, decades. We have scientific literature going back decades that links obesity with compromised immune systems. We knew this was coming and we, you know, and as I've just said then, we know that there is on a long enough timescale going to be another pandemic. So if we don't have a shift in the narrative now towards prevention and preparing for what's inevitably going to come around again and you've got to ask the question you know well what are these people in charge really doing because they're not acting in the best interest of national health at all and certainly not our national health service here in the uk yeah well i mean you touched on on the percentage i think ours here i forget the obesity i think it's like 40 but but overweight and or obese is 70 percent of the U.S. population. And I'm paraphrasing, but I know Winston Churchill said you can measure the greatness of a nation by the health of its people. So, you know, what's funny here, and I'm sure in the U.K. the same, is the Tories, you know, blame the the Dems and, you know, the the liberals. And, and, and here we have the fucking Democrats and the Republicans. It, it's irrelevant because both of you have been in power the last 40 50 years as this nation has got sicker and sicker and sicker so you're both responsible it's the the system that's broken you're just some idiot that happens to wear a blue tie or a red tie or a you know, neck chief or whatever the hell you wear it you know what i mean so it's but it is it's disgusting and, and you and i see it and you know my peers in in the medical world and fire and police we see it up front and personal we pull back the curtain because i, I wrote about it in the book that i wrote in one of the chapters, like the number of people that I've shoved a tube down their throat, and you know, I say we, you know, my crew, we, um, you know, done CPR and push drugs, and they die, and they have a sack full of medication, blood pressure, diabetes, or so it's chronic disease management. They don't want healthy people, and they don't want dead people. They want to keep you right in the middle, and there's no difference between that kind of drug philosophy and what we were talking about earlier with the illicit drug you know it's it's the the the, the supply and demand if we keep people sick these drug companies are going to make a fortune and don't get me wrong there are some phenomenal drugs that are saving lives out there but i'm talking about the drugs that are deliberately being used 
instead of nutrition and exercise that has caused this horrendous ill health epidemic that I agree with you a million percent has taken so many lives when this virus swept through the planet. Yeah, you, you're you're essentially creating demand for these drugs. I mean, it's not it's not so much that these we don't need these drugs. It's that they serve their purpose perfectly. But the question is, could we have prevented a need for them in the first place? And the answer to that is simple: yes, we could. And then just to go back to the the, the Churchill quote that you mentioned, that you measure uh, you know a nation's greatness on the health of its people. If you think if you think you know if you if you if you take that apart and you look at it, we were only one pandemic away from spending more. For, for, for then reaching wartime level spending. We've not spent like this in the UK since the Second World War. And he's exactly right. What what can what can cripple a country more than poor health? There is very little that can besides a world war. So we are now, you know, we have levels of employment in the UK are sky high. You know, our, our health service is absolutely destroyed. We've lost, you know, over a million small to medium-sized businesses for good in the last 12 months. Our national depression rate has doubled. Our suicides are at a 20-year high. Now, we have we have been crippled as a nation. And, you know, that that, that is testament to the statement, you know, the quote that you, you mentioned from Churchill, that if you're in bad health, you're only one pandemic away from, from being knocked off the top as one of the leading countries in the world. And we are going to spend the next 10 years recovering from the spending that we've done here. And we're going to pull funding from public services teachers police you name it we are going to suffer you know a, a a serious decline in both health and you know economic growth because we weren't prepared because we allowed ourselves to get this way and you know as you say it, it, it's 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 heartbreaking that we've allowed this level of uh, political profiteering to take place and not only are they happy to continue increasing demand for these drugs, you know, with, with the links that they've got with, you know, Big Pharma and the, the envelopes that they're getting, you know, not only are they doing that, they're also inflating the price of these drugs. And I know you guys, I think the U.S. pays more for drugs, the same drugs as everywhere else than anywhere else in the world. I know oh, we yeah. pay an inflated rate in the U.K., but you guys get absolutely slaughtered. These drugs are costing pennies to make, and they are dictating the price of these drugs not based on how much it takes in research and production, but based on how much you as a patient needs it. So if it, you know, if it, if it's medication that is going to prevent you from dying, you're going to pay more money for it. And therefore the, 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 the price is inflated. Now, how, how, how can you justify doing that? Surely the price of a drug should be based on how much has gone into research and development and how much it is cost to manufacture it, not how much the person needs it. You, you're essentially, you know, you're, you're using, you're using somebody's life, you know, to, to extort them, you know, someone's need for medication to extort them out of what you think they're willing to pay. And that is, that is how that is anything other than criminal, in my opinion, is, is, is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Well, an example I use, I think is, is terrifying is Viagra and the other, you know, similar drugs. So again, a, a lesser known fact, which is horrendous. This is a lesser known fact is if you have ED, which that phrase, by the way, was made up by an ad company, it's not even a medical phrase, erectile dysfunction, but if you can't get it up, there are no muscles in the penis, it's all blood vessels. So if you can't get it up, it means your blood vessels are clogged. If your blood vessels are clogged in your penis, that means your blood vessels going up to your brain, going into your heart, going to your lungs, are also clogged. So it's actually a terrifying precursor to a life-changing or, or terminal, you know, 
stroke, heart attack, whatever you want to say. So rather than address that, no, let's just make up a pill so we can open up the blood vessel so you can get a 12-hour erection. You're still going to die, but at least you got a boner a couple of times before you, you did, you know? I mean, it's that, there's no perfect, no more perfect um, kind of analogy of how corrupt and backwards that side of medicine is. What it should be is the moment you have issues with that, we need to be aggressive on your nutrition, we need to be aggressive on your exercise so you can naturally, you know, have sex again, but also address the issues that might kill you. One million percent, and obviously with erectile dysfunction, you, you know there are a, a good portion of cases where it is just a psychological issue. Is you know, is it is it stress? Is it your environment? What is it? But you know, they, they don't want to have that conversation. It's just here's your medication, take your Viagra. Don't worry about what's causing the problem. But here, you know, here's something that will temporarily get you where you need to be. Don't worry about, as you say, the you know the the knock on negative health effects you're going to get from that. Let's just give you a quick fix, make a quick book. Uh, you know, it's it, it's how how have we allowed this to happen? And, and you know, here in the UK, I don't know about I mean, the US, obviously, you guys are with your private systems, but with the NHS, the waiting list now for you to get therapy or counseling for, you know, psychological issues for mental health is over 12 months long. That's the waiting period in which, you know, you have to get access to, you know, proper counseling for mental health. But if you want medication, you can get it immediately. And I, and I understand that, you know, it, there is more resources required for, for us to have more counselor, counselors and whatever else, which is why I think that there should be a, a you know, a, a it should be balanced between money that we put into having more healthcare workers who are, you know, who are experienced and educated and qualified in, you know, helping people with mental health and into prevention, into stopping people getting into these, you know, the, the, these types of situations in the first place. And we just don't see it and for as long as we're going to allow politicians to go unchecked with the you know the contributions that they're getting from these companies it's difficult to see how we're going to have change on a wide scale unless as you say we can bring that much awareness to the people of you know but you know the, everybody in the western world you don't see it so much in the east at all um you know to, to stand up and say enough is enough stop profiteering off of death and misery and disease and illness and let's get healthy because you know it's going to be better for everyone as a whole not just the one percent at the top who are you know are taking checks home at the end of the day yeah well especially is that 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 money's being spent so if you reallocate like you said you you let's take the drug prohibition for a second so you change it and you funnel that money into the prevention you support mental health you you help train a bunch of mental health counselors and you know like i said uh, you know, addiction treatments and all that kind of thing well now that money's not going to prisons and you know the the sum of the anti-drug policing and now those police officers can actually chase smugglers and, and and dealers and and ideally as the trade dwindles now they can focus on the murderers and the rapists and the sex traffickers and the real shitbags of the world um and then the same with obesity now you start focusing on bolstering nutrition and 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 supporting local farms and and you know gyms god forbid um, and we, which we'll get to in a second, we were, what, an hour and a half in, we haven't even touched on that yet. <laughs> um, you know, now again, you have all this money that you were funneling into these, these sick Americans, these sick Brits. And now you can use that for the proactive stuff. So it's not about, oh, we need more tax, more tax. It's just going from reactive to proactive and understanding that it's, as we talked about the other day, 
you have to have the courage to do something that might not come to fruition until after you're out of office. But that's what a good leader is. No, you know, we don't need the, the McDonald's drive-through version of your policies that's going to make you look good next year. You have to invest in your country so that 10, 20 years from now, people look back and thank you. You might be dead, but you, but you actually made a difference in your country. Yeah, and I, I wonder I wonder how we fix a situation like that. Do we extend the period in which a particular government or president has in office so that they can look further afield, or would we still be inviting the same behavior of them wanting that quick fix, that quick bit of praise from the press and the public because they've turned something around short term, but they've created a, a you know, a huge degree of problems long term, you know, would, would that fix the situation? Do you think if we were to give longer terms, maybe, you know, in here in the UK, I think it's five years, if we were to extend that to 10, 15, would that help? Would they start looking further afield or would they still be looking for this quick fix just to get the public on their side? Yeah. One thing that I think is dev- devoid in the air quotes, leaders that I remember from when I was young back home and then the people here is there seems to be a true absence of kindness and compassion, a true absence for the core of what they're doing is to make this country better, not better as in it's a competition like our last president here. You know, we're best in the world, even though we didn't do anything to actually deserve that, Um, but actually better, like for the people that live here. You know, the, the air is cleaner, the people are healthier, the kids are having more fun at school and learning more. You know, the, the addiction is down, the mental health is, you know, all these things. So that's, I think, what we need is someone, you know, again, going to, to religion. The reason why people, you know, seem to lean towards Jesus or Buddha or Judah or, you know, all these different is because they were good people. We don't have that in a lot of these countries. We have self-serving politicians who take handouts from all these companies who then use our fucking tax money to bolster, you know, to, to line their own pockets. So to me, it's, it's creating a system that allows good men and women to get in that leadership position that truly have that, that altruistic element and don't want to see their country getting fatter and sicker and dying more often. One hundred percent, and I, I think one of the one of the positives that has come from this this pandemic, and and you know how much we've all struggled over the last twelve months, is that we are now, you know, we've been subject to more um, sort of political coverage than we ever have, and we've seen, at least here in the UK, I'm sure you have in the in the US, you've seen more holes in the system and seeing the way that it works and you know the the inner workings of how broken the system is i think that's one of the one of the the benefits one of the positives that have come out of the last 12 months is that people are now aware of how broken these systems are which you know be, before this before you know something this ugly has happened and it's gone relatively unnoticed because you know, you you work your your eight, nine, ten hour shift. You come home. You know, you, you you cook for your kids or you take them to school. You've got no time to be tuning in to what these people are doing and how much they contradict themselves in what they say versus what they do. And we've all been sat at home now for nine of the last twelve months here in the UK, watching TV and seeing these people come on television and say, "This is what we're going to do," and then you'll see them do the exact opposite. Or you know, say the NHS. Well, hang on a minute. You've been you've been chopping it to pieces for the last 10 years, you know, and, and, and it's really brought to the surface and to the forefront of, of people's minds, I think, of how broken it is and how much that we need change. And I think 
this is an opportunity for us now. And I think you touched on it earlier when you said, you know, this is this this is a turning point for us in many respects. I think this is an opportunity now while people are so aware of how broken things are, that we could, you know, actually bring in some change if we don't allow ourselves to slip back into that same behavior of, you know, being ignorant to what's really going on and not being aware of how much it really does impact us, you know, these decisions. Cause I mean, me personally, I didn't take much of an interest in politics for so many years because I thought it doesn't really affect me. Like anything that happens, doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't really affect my day-to-day life. I still go to the gym. I still go to my local store. I'll come home. That's it. You know what I mean? Anything that happens doesn't affect me. But when you see COVID and you see the damage that it's done to our society and, and you know, the, the, the issues that have been there for so long that we could have tackled and prevented what's happened here, you see that, hang on, every decision that's made in there is affecting all of us on a large scale. We're just not aware of it because, you know, we're, we're not, we're not subject to seeing it all the time. And over the last 12 months, we have seen it all. We've seen it ugly. You know, we've, we've seen them, we've seen politicians tear each other apart. We've seen the press go at each other. We've seen the press go at politicians. And especially in the US, we've seen politicians go at the press. Um, so I think we can utilize this now for something really positive. Now that everybody is kind of aware of what's going on, we can say, right, we want some change. The only way we get change is if we band together and we start voting appropriately and we start, you know, endorsing the right policies and we make enough noise against the policies that shouldn't be getting passed. Absolutely. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about your journey into 2020. So leave me out of coming out of uh, out of prison, you know, entering the gym space and then let's talk about COVID. Sure, man. So I, I came out of prison October 2017 and leading up to this point, the 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 street that I grew up in just at the end of the street and I'm talking 50 yards is a gym that opened not long before I went away and you know I I had a vision back in the days of turning the same building which was a a a cinema it was a an old picture house from the 1920s but it was you know it's in my little town it's one of the only bits of character and history that we've got left and I I always envisaged turning it into you know maybe some sort of parkour gym or you know like a dance studio or something like that and then just before I went away, a Scottish couple, you know, come down to Liverpool and they turn this building into a gym. And and I was like, wow, you know, this is exactly, you know, or very near exact to what, what I had pictured this place being. And I went away. And just before I got back out, um, they decided that they were up and leaving and going back to, to Glasgow. And it just come up in conversation. Like he, he wasn't, you know, I, I, I used to right back and forth to him because he was, he was a really nice guy. He was a, a director of, you know, a big shell gas and oil company. So he was set financially. This was like a, a pet project for him and his missus just to keep them busy in retirement. Um, but he kept in touch and I kept in touch with him. He was a really cool guy. And then we got talking just, you know, again, just before I got out and he said, yeah, you know, we're, we're selling the gym and wherever, just as a passing comment. And I was like, you know, you, you're selling the gym, you know, what, what, what's the plan with it? Is anybody interested? He's like, you know, there's been, there's been a couple of, you know, a couple of people interested, he said, but, you know, not nothing's really materialized from it. And I, I said, look, I said, let me let me see where I can get together. Let me speak to family. I've been working from the prison system for about 18 months now because of because of, you know, how I'd handled myself in there and, and how I was contributing to the system and my behavior was in check. They allowed me to leave the prison every day to go and work. Um, so initially I did like a, a, a three month period where I worked for a charity just to assess, you know, that I wasn't going to run off. Um, so then I had 18 months following that where I was being paid to work in this, uh, head office of this, you know, social, social enterprise, um, company. And 
obviously I had nothing to spend my money on. So I, I saved every single penny that I earned. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't buying anything. You know, I, I was still in that, that parkour frame of mind of I didn't need anything. Um, so I'd managed to save 18 months worth of savings. I, I spoke to family and I said to them, let me, let me see where I can come up with. And towards getting out, I'd managed, I'd managed to amass maybe half of what it was that he was asking for. And I said, look, how, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about me taking half of the business and I will buy you out of the other half with every bit of wage that I get and every bit of, of, of percentage of profit that I get. It guarantees you the sale. You know it's coming into good hands and, and you can mentor me in the early stages, you know, of, of, of how the business operates and, you know, we'll go from there. And he was like, okay, I, you know, I, I'm game for that, Nick. I, you know, I've known you for a long time. I know, you're, I know you're a nice guy. He said, I'd really like to see it in the hands of someone who's passionate about it because, as I say, you know, it's always been my, my vision. He said, let, let, let's go for it. So I come home. I took 50% of the shares, you know, he, he put me straight on a, a director's salary. Um, and I, I transformed the place because when I, when I, when I got it, it was, it was still very bodybuilder esque. It was very, I'm better than you. You should compete. You know, you should want to be better than these people. And I come in there with fresh eyes and I was like, you know, how much are you, uh, you know, are you bothered about if I change everything now, given that I'm going to own the whole business eventually? He's like, no, you do whatever you want to do. So I, you know, I, I stripped the place. I changed the social media. I changed the community in there. I had people interacting with each other. You know, I tried to encourage like people using local tradesmen from within the gym. You know, all, all just little bits like that to get people, you know, mixing together more. Took away the, you know, the dark, gloomy stereotype of it being a bodybuilding gym, which you know increased the the, the female membership and you know memberships went up. So we were making more profit. I had my wage and I, I paid him out completely within about. I want to say 10 months, maybe somewhere in that, in that region. I saved everything. I lived, I lived super rudimental coming out of prison. Cause I you keep in mind, I've just been living on, on tuna and noodles for the last three years. You know what I mean? I, I know that I need very little to survive. So I, I kept that, I kept that mindset. You know, I lived very basic. I was shopping in the cheapest stores. I wasn't buying flash clothes. I was happy with what I was wearing, bought out the rest of the business. And then after I bought him out, I continued that approach of saving everything and not wasting and every penny that I made, I put back into the business. And since that time, our, our, our memberships doubled, you know, we've got, you know, a, a lot of recognition in the area. The business is doing really well. The community is super strong. And, you know, our, our tagline is the people's gym because that, you know, that's exactly what it is. And, and you, the community in there now is, is, you know, very like the parkour community I have. Everybody knows each other. Everybody chats. Everyone supports each other. And, you know, I, I thrive off that. And people are thriving off that. You know, it, it's a much more positive environment to be around. And, you know, it, it, it's it's found me a lot of success with the business. Um, So between getting out, buying the gym and everything else, I, I done, you know, I did a little bit of traveling. And, you know, bought some budget flights with, you know, some really terrible airlines. Um, but, you know, I was able to take my, take a, a 30 pound flight, take my rucksack with, you know, uh, some underwear and a couple of t-shirts in there. And, you know, I went traveling around Asia, uh, for, it was a good couple of months and we were you're spending like, you know, a, a 11 pounds per night to stay in, you know, like the, the, these low quality hotels, but then enabling me to have enough time there to experience everything that it had to offer, you know, go and visit places in, in, in Thailand and, and, you know, Bali and Singapore, um, you know, and, and I was, it's quite funny actually, if you look at my Instagram, like when I was in, um, Singapore and Thailand, you still see pictures of me eating tuna and noodles that I bought from the local markets there. 
Um, because it's costing you like I don't know, you know, eighty p a pound per meal, you know, a dollar a dollar to eat. You know what I mean? It, it, it's super cheap. So I bagged a, a load more of experience in traveling. Um, come, I haven't, I haven't competed in bodybuilding or anything, you know, re- relevant to that whatsoever. I just say to people, look, just just want to be better for you. Want to be better than the version of you that you were yesterday. You know, don't worry about comparing yourself to anybody else because you, you know. It, as the saying goes, comparison is a thief of joy. If you're going to compare yourself to somebody else, you're, de- you're destined to fail. Because even if you put in the same amount of work, you may not be wired up genetically the same way. Like me from the waist down, I, I have extremely good legs. And that's not because I put in tons of work. If you look at my, my, my mom and my uncles, they've got huge quads, huge calves. They've never been to the gym in their life. Do you know what I mean? And, and I, I have these really, I have really good legs. And if someone was to compare themselves to me and put in the exact same amount of effort that I do, they wouldn't yield the same results. And I don't think that's a fair comparison for people to do, to compare themselves to other people in that way, unless you are really... I was going to say, I've got chicken legs, so I can tell I've worked, I've worked out all my life and they still have like toothpicks with shoes on, so I can totally relate. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that I think people should just, you know, unless you're really... Unless psychologically you're you're built differently to other people, and you can handle that sort of comparison, and you can be objective and acknowledge the fact that genetically they may be different from you, and you know there is more to it than you just standing next to them and saying he's bigger or he's stronger. Um, so I try and discourage the competitive side of things, and just encourage people to compete only against themselves in a positive way. You know, I just want to be one percent better this week than I was last week, or you know, it's just something along those lines. And it, you know, it, it, it's it's changed the social fabric in that gym completely. And coming into COVID, I mean, our our first lockdown here, our first national lockdown in the UK, was it March 2020 or April 2020? Somewhere somewhere around there. Um, And then when the first national lockdown came in, we had no idea, you know, what, what this, what this was going to be. And, you know, for early indications were that it was going to, you know, it was going to be an apocalyptic level event. So we, 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 you know, we done the responsible thing as everyone else did. We, we locked down, you know, we waited to see what was going to happen. Um, and it was, you know, there was still a whole lot of uncertainty in the air here in the UK, at least as to how damaging this was going to be to society. And, you know, our, our lockdown got extended and extended again and extended again. Um, and then eventually they discussed a, you know, a, a staggered approach to reopening businesses. And within the time that we were closed, we renovated the entire building. Um, we got, we gave all of our equipment away to our members free of charge. There was no, you know, there was no rental, there was no deposits. I mean, you're talking like $70,000 worth of equipment at least like the running machines, treadmills, you know, everything went out and it was just a case of, because our community and the rapport that we have is so strong, it was put your name on the list, write down what you've taken, and it's and we'll see you when we see you. Do you know what I mean? Stay in touch, drop us a message if you need any help with anything. And you know, that that's the kind of gym and, and the kind of theme and the kind of community side of things that I've, you know, that I really try and push in there. And we've seen a couple of other gyms see what we were doing and adopt that same approach. And it was, you know, it was really good to see that they'd look after their members in that way because, you know, I mean, the the impact that exercise has as you know on on mental and physical health is is absolutely huge and not only that as we've said if you are and as you say yourself you know act as if you're going to get covid okay that's exactly what you should do you should want to be fitter and healthier and prepared for the 
inevitable eventuality that you are going to get this virus. I mean, I, I, I had it myself in December, which, you know, we can get to shortly, but you should want to be prepared. And we allowed our members to do that. And then everywhere else opened before us as gyms, as, as a, you know, a, a gyms and fitness and leisure centers, because we were assumed to be super spreaders. You know, there was no evidence for this. That was just an assumption from the, you know, the, the politicians who've never seen the inside of a gym, you know, the, the, the median age of our politicians is like 50, you know, and they all come from upper class backgrounds. And if anything, they would have a private facility, do you know what I mean, at home or whatever else. They they, they have this vision of gyms that is, you know, it, it rusty metal everywhere and people are grunting and sweating and we're all packed in together, you know, like we're at, like we're at Disneyland. Um, you know, and it really isn't like that. And, you know, so they kept us closed till last. They opened everywhere else first. And then on July the 24th, I think, of 2020, we were allowed to reopen on the, you know, severe restrictions. Um, and we reopened and, you know, we've seen a, a bigger increase in members coming out of that lockdown than we had beforehand, which I think is testament to the fact that people have had exercise and activity taken away from them and they were so keen to get back involved. So everybody comes back, we, you know, this is the summer now, and then government announced the Eat Out to Help Out scheme that we had here, which was um, they allocated in the end $950 million to subsidizing the hospitality sector, um, which economically, you know, I, I see that it would, you know, it makes sense in terms of supporting the businesses, whether it was the right move to do at the time encouraging people to go to restaurants when you know the, the infection rate off this you know it, it spiraled again you know there there are the two sides to this argument and you know the, you find different stats everywhere but the the opposition government were calling it the eat out to spread out um and you know i, I don't know whether that's the case because it was summer and we do see seasonality with viruses you know what i mean we don't see a lot of transmission through the summer um and, and as i say economically i think it was a good idea but the bulk of um, consumption in the hospitality sector comes from the fast food companies, your McDonald's, your Burger King. So the, you know, the majority of that pot, pot of money went to subsidizing calorie dense, you know, uh, uh, fast food uh, uh, laced with preservatives and, and, and wherever else. Uh, and that's to do that in a time of a national health crisis, you know, it, it felt yeah, at the very least, that it hadn't been thought through properly. They're going to use 950 million of you know the public's money at a time when you know we are we've already spent you know an astronomical astronomical amount of money to subsidise fast food to contribute to the ever growing obesity crisis to still you know be restricting how many people we can have in gyms and whatever else. So that I mean that was the first kind of kick in the teeth. I personally think it would have been better if they'd have just giving grants to them businesses rather than, you know, encouraging people to mix or consume calorie dense food, just help them businesses out by giving them the financial aid, same amount of money. So they'd have still got, you know, the, 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 the same amount of money, but it wouldn't have had people consuming these calorie dense foods. Um, and then we reach October and this is where things, this is where things got a little bit complicated. They were I don't know if we do we have a second. No, so this was before our second national lockdown. So they were talking about uh, implementing a tiered system. So tier one would be the you know the lower of the risk, and tier two would be the the next step of of risk where there would be more restrictions and more businesses forced to close. 
Um, so we had them two systems, them two tiers in place for a short while. And we reached the beginning of October and there's whispers of a tier three, you know, the, the, the next step up. Um, and what would be included within them closures? Now, you know, we, we, we put a lot of evidence forward at this point as to why we shouldn't be closed. You know, we had the transmission data from our trade body in the UK, and we'd had somewhere in the region of, you know, 30 million gym visits in the time of op- from opening in July 24th right through to October. And we'd had less than, say, 200 confirmed cases out of 30 million visits. And the government's own... Um, you know, record of this from the the Office of National Statistics had gyms down as only 1.7%, you know, from a a contribution perspective to the infection rate. So we knew that we weren't a risk or a substantial risk in terms of COVID prevalence. And we knew that the benefits to having our sector open in terms of alleviating the strain from our health service and, you know, having people better prepared for you know what's coming with covid we we knew that that drastically outweighed the risk so when they first put out the policy it stated that under tier three restrictions the decision to open or close gyms and health centers would be left to the discretion of local authority now we heard this maybe four days before we were pushed into this tier three now our our city region liverpool we were the first to be pushed into tier three there was nowhere else in the uk that had been you know that had been pushed into this tier we were the we were the guinea pigs at this point now um we we we, we come to this point now and we're four days before the, the restrictions come into place and they said yeah it's going to be left to local authority and then the prime minister makes the announcement two days before we are due to go into these restrictions and he says he lists the forced closures and within there is gyms and health centers. Now that was alarm bells immediately because we'd seen we'd seen the legislation and we knew it was up to local authority. So we assumed at this point local authority had you know they, they they'd stabbed us in the back. You know we looked like an easy option to get rid of. They just attacked us. So we approached them. You know we contacted the mayor, both of our mayors. Uh, we contacted our, our local MPs, you know our local politicians, and said, look, what what's going on here? Why have you done this? And they come back and said, look. We've had no involvement in this. We should have been given the decision. It's written in that we should have been given the decision. They have completely, you know, they've overrided our ability to contribute and they've just closed it down when they should not have legislation states they should not have. We disagree with it. We as the local authority do not believe that this, that you should be closed, but our hands are tied. This has come from central government. And, you know, that was a tough pill to swallow. So we, we, we banded together you know the 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 bulk of the independent gyms that we could because we knew the corporates at this point wouldn't be able to step in because you know they've got to answer to shareholders and wherever else they don't want it to get messy so we banded together the independent businesses the independent gyms we put them all in a, a group chat and we said what can we do we've exhausted the avenues with the with the local authority how can we bring awareness to the fact that something wrong is going on here this is you know this is an attack on health with no justification the the evidence the science doesn't support the policy what do we do and we, we, we come to the decision together that we would stand up against this and we would open despite legislation stating that we should be closed. And we made a video uh, two days be- before we were due to close. And we said, look, we're not going to close. This is why, you know, we, we've got the, you know, the economic side of things. We've got the, the health side of things and the fact that there is no scientific evidence. There's no data to support this decision whatsoever. We are going to 
conduct ourselves in a COVID safe fashion as we have done all along. And that's why our prevalence of, of COVID is so low in our sector. This isn't reckless. This isn't COVID denial. This is, you know, this has just a, been a an error as far as we're aware. And if we can have a wider conversation on this, the right thing will be done. So that was the first video that went out and that that got a lot of traction. I, I think maybe, I don't know, a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand views overnight. Um, and then the day before we were due to open, the police come to visit us and they said, hey guys, because it was myself and my closest gym to us, uh, to myself, which is Empowered, which is owned by uh, good friends of mine, Chris and Thea. Like we were sort of at the, the forefront of this. Um, and the police come and they said, tomorrow, this is what's going to happen, guys. We've got, we've got to come and we've got to issue you with a, an official warning if you do open, as you've said. Um, he said, there'll be no fine on the first day. Uh, the second day, we'll come back. We'll give you your first fine, which will be 200 pounds. The day after that, it will be 400 pounds, you know, and we'll come back every day and it keeps doubling until it reaches 10,000 pounds. And they said, you know, they were, they were super nice guys. They were like, look, you know, we, we, you know, we've got to come down here and give you a heads up. Like, this is what's going to happen. You know, this is, you know, it was out of respect more than anything, you know, just so you're aware of, of what's coming next. He said, you know, we, we, we don't agree with the decision, but you know, you know, this is, this is the situation. Okay. No problem. Sure. I, you know, I appreciate you coming down to let us know. The following day when we opened for the first time, now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting and a little bit suspicious, in my opinion. Um, so first thing in the morning, three police officers attend my facility. The same guys from the day before. You know, good morning, Nick. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, as we said, we've just come to give you your first official warning. You say, you know, we're, we're sorry that we were here having to do this. You know, it, it, you know it's, a, it's a crap time for all of us. We don't agree with it. I, I hope you know that, Nick. And I'm like, guys, you know, you're doing your job. You're being respectful for me. You're, you're, you're carrying out law that you didn't make, legislation that you, know, that you didn't make. You know, enjoy your day. I'll see you tomorrow. Three hours later, they return in numbers. There was, I think there was seven, maybe eight officers that had come from, um, they'd been tasked from the, the armed division of the police, but they weren't armed. They'd been, they were taken from the armed division of the police and tasked COVID duty. So, we now have eight officers who, who attended the gym who, who, who didn't have firearms as such, but they had their, their tasers holstered to their chest, which, you know, you don't, don't really see a lot with the, you know, the, 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 the police on the, on the street here, you know, they come from a specialist division and they said, uh, Nick, we, we've come back. We're going to have to find you. I said, you know, what, what, what you said, you'd be back tomorrow. Uh, why are you back now? You know, this was three hours later. He said, Nick, this has come from, and his exact words were, and I, I've got this on tape. This has come from our boss's boss's boss. We have to come down and enforce this now. And they told us to enforce it hard. He said, uh, he, he said, your first fine is going to be a thousand pounds. I said, you know, what happened to 200 pounds? He said, this is just what I've been told. Um, he said, Nick, like we've been told to find you, but if you close right now, we won't find you. We really don't want to find you. You know, we've seen your videos. We know that this is wrong. We know it's been an error. He said, we really don't want to have to find you. You know, please just, you know, do us a favor. Just, you know, we, we ask people to leave close and, and we'll go away. And that's that. We really don't want to have to do this to a local business. And he said, you know, we're all gym owners. Uh, we're all gym users. And I, I recognized a couple of the guys, you know, and it, it must have been really uncomfortable for them to be there. Because, um, you know, we, we've got quite a small community and they were, you know, the, the, everybody knows everybody. So they've been told, eight of them have now been tasked to come to a local business, small local business, to issue a civil fine, one civil fine. You know, they, they've sent eight officers, eight officers in two big vans to come and issue one civil fine. Why it takes eight officers to, to issue one piece of paper, you know, 
it was quite obviously a, a scare tactic to try and, you know, suppress us. And we go, you know, oh, there's a police presence. We must close immediately. You know, we must be doing the wrong thing. And, and you know, we knew we weren't. And even even the police officers in attendance knew we weren't doing the wrong thing. And this was kind of like the the, the, the confirmation that we needed, I think, at this point, or at least, you know, that gave us some encouragement. They were like, we know this is wrong. We don't want to have to do this, but we do have to as part of our job. And at this point now, in my opinion, it could have very easily turned into us versus the police. And, you know, we've seen this in other parts of the country where the police will come and, and we'll have this incident and it will turn into a, we hate the police. The police are the bad guys. And, and you know, I, I, I'm able to be objective, at least I think I am. And especially in that situation, I know that they aren't the lawmakers and they are, you know, they're, they're just there to enforce a law. They're respectful for me. And at the end of the day, you know, some people are like, oh, they could just refuse to do it. Of course they could. Then they'd lose their job. Just, you know, just shy of Christmas. They'd have no money. Their families would suffer. And all that would happen is there would be another police officer brought in to take their place who would then issue the fine. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not as black and white as saying, oh, I hate the police. They shouldn't be doing this. These guys don't want to be doing it any more than we want to be on the receiving end of it. Um, so anyway, long story short, I said to the officers, look, I, you know, I, I've spoken to the other guys. They're behind me. We're going to share any fines we get. Please, you know, issue me the fine. I appreciate you don't want to. I said, there's no, you know, there's no hard feelings. You do what you need to do. I'll do what I need to do. I said, just for a moment, will you allow me to take a video of you guys just to document that you're here? I said, you know, just protect yourselves. Make sure that you're standing apart. You've got your masks on because they obviously would, this video is going online and I didn't want their jobs to, to suffer from this because they were decent with me. So I panned the video, filmed the back of the gym went home, filmed the video in my garden, just explaining what had happened to put that online. And within three days between Instagram and Facebook, I had like 6 million hits. And with the influx of press that we had the following day was absolutely huge. I mean, I obviously I've never witnessed anything like that in my life. I don't think, you know, m many people have. We had, and I, and I don't know how relevant the name and names would be to, to, to the bulk of your listeners, but we had all of the main stations to the point where we even had CNN reach out wanting to do an interview. We had the New York Times come and do a, a full spread on us and then all the British press. Um, and it, they, they weren't covering us in a, in a negative light. I mean, Sky tried to cover us quite negatively. They tried to make it an emotional thing. They tried to say, well, don't you care about people dying? This was on live news, and and then the presenter made herself look quite silly because like you, you you're reckless. You don't care about people dying. I'm like, no, 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 nobody said anything about this. Can I turn your attention to the statistics of of COVID prevalence in our sector? And at the time, like I said, we were at 1.7 percent. We had hospitality that was still open at 26 percent of the infection rate. We had schools still open who were at 37 percent of the infection rate. I said, so tell me how closing the 1.7 percent contributor is going to tackle this know this virus when you still have everywhere else that's still open plus take into consideration the health benefits of having our sector open and you know we we, we had this duel with the press for five or six days we were on there stating the importance of exercise and nutrition you know stating you know exercise reducing you know mental health issues by you know your risk of severe depression by 30 percent and, and and so on you know it we listed all these stats that were government stats, and this is this is this is what won it for us, I think, because every every source that we referenced was government data or NHS data, and they couldn't argue with it. And as I say, the lady on Sky, the presenter, made herself look quite silly for trying to make it an emotional battle. Because when she was presented with the stats, you could see how you know frustrated she was that she had nothing you know to come back with. And then you know once people seen that we weren't reckless, we had some of the the biggest corporations jump on board from our sector. We had the the three biggest gym chains get behind us here in the UK. 
we had some of the biggest sports nutrition and clothing uh, brands in our industry get behind us. We had Grenade and Gymshark and, you know, the likes got behind us. You know, Brian Rose uh, got behind us from London, London uh, Real. Um, you know, we, we had all this support and that amassed within the space of like five days. And and I think I was saying on the conversation that I had to you the other day, you know, I, I'm myself, Thea and Chris are now having Zoom calls with the CEOs of the biggest corporations within our industry. And we're just little independent businesses. And, you know, I, I, I said this to people in the past, you know, take to give it context, the sweet shop, the independently owned sweet shop in your, you know, your, your, your neighborhood or your village who's owned by, you know, just just two you know, two normal people. It's a family-run business. Imagine them taking a a Zoom call with, you know, the CEO of Walmart or Tesco or something like that for you know for the best interests of that sector. And we, in my, you know, as far as I'm aware, we've not seen that with any other industry whatsoever. We've seen a level of unity that I've never witnessed in my life at all. And and you know, it was beautiful to see that. And the politicians got on board. We created a petition. We got 650,000 signatures on the petition, which is a huge number. That That is one of only two that have gone that high in recent years. Um, you know, we, we got it to the debate floor and we had how it works with our UK political system in, in debates. They, they usually randomly select the politicians that come and debate it so that it's fair. So they randomly selected 16 MPs, uh, 16 politicians, because it was reduced capacity at the time, to debate uh, this situation. And all 16 MPs were in favor of our service being you know, deemed uh, essential because they, we had the data, we presented it to them in a coherent way. Here's the stats. Um, and we had national legislation changed and that then give the ability to those in tier three to still access their gyms. Now at, at the toughest point of the pandemic, we had about half the country in tier three, which is about 30, 35 million somewhere in that region. Now within that 35 million, we have about four and a half, five million service users, gym goers. So 5 million people then had access to, you know, like 8% of the country had access to their gyms and their outlets for better in their physical and mental health. We would not have, had we not taken a stand on that first day. And, you know, it, that, that was the, the catalyst to everything that's followed. And we've done a lot of press and, you know, we're, we're, we're currently fighting for a, a workout to help out, which, you know, we can get onto, but you know, that, that, that was kind of the beginning of it all. That was just, that was just the first week. Um, you know, so it, it's been absolutely crazy. And we, you know, we've seen a few attempts from central government to blame local authority. You know, this was on live TV local authority asking government back, you know, we didn't do this. And they're saying, well, it's, it's your decision. So, you know, who, who is it that's, that's stitching us up here? Um, and we think that the general feel here was that they were testing the waters in Liverpool with tier three to see if they could close our sector as, as easy pickings to see if we take it lying down. And obviously we in Liverpool, we have a, a reputation for being, um, well, we, we, we don't quite take, neglect and unfairness well or, or sitting down do you know what i mean they, they they pick the wrong city in my opinion because we have a history of uniting our communities here in liverpool against you know a, a, a against targeted attacks from central government because we're way out the way in the northwest you know we, we've seen lower levels of funding and support from central government so there's always been that kind of you know we look after each other you know, and we utilize that. And as I said, this was just the first week and we, we, we had huge victory with that. Yeah, it was, it's amazing. And you, you touched on, you know, 
something that I'd said when we talked before, and it completely aligns with that. One of the biggest mistakes I think that a lot of these countries have done is it kind of framed the response to the virus, the individual sponsor of virus as hide and seek. Let's hide from this virus. This, this, if you stay at home, if you wear a mask, you're not going to get this virus and you're not going to spread this virus. Instead of saying, I want you to assume that you are going to get this virus. We still need to isolate. We still need to be careful. We do have an underfunded hospital system that we are going to crush if we all just, you know, have a, you know, a Glastonbury style gathering all at the same time in the middle of London. But what we did is we cut the legs off the people. You know, you, you, you took away their ability to act. Whereas we're, we're sitting here having this conversation a year after this thing swept through the UK and the US. So we should have a nation that is one year healthier. Everyone, you know, the, the national obesity you know, level should be less. The mental health should be improved. The environment. I mean, God, what a, what a message we got in March and April that was completely discarded after we started wrapping everything in plastic. So that I think is, is what's so important. And I think what really resonates with me is a lot of the voices for this movement are people who aren't vulnerable themselves. So we're advocating for people because we know they're vulnerable. We're advocating for people. I, I would lick someone's face today with COVID. I'm not worried whatsoever. And I'm not saying that to be arrogant, to be a dick. I just have never had any issue with any other virus that swept through this country, you know? So because I focus on my health doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to be that one anomaly, but I could also have a brain bleed right now and die in the middle of this conversation. Shit happens. But as a healthy, you know, middle aged dude now, I f it terrifies me, the health of the men and women in the US, in the UK, in Australia that are vulnerable. And this virus is just one little thing. They're vulnerable day in, day out from heart attacks, from strokes, from all kinds of things. And as, as we touched on earlier, you've got to think about vulnerability from violence, whether it's an attack, whether it's, you know, an invading army. The healthier a nation is, the less vulnerable they are to that kind of issue as well. So there are so many areas that we health advocates want to do. And it's not a selfish thing because I'm fine. I'm fit. I'm healthy. You know, it's not about me. It's not about protecting me. It's not, as you said, with, with how you felt that bodybuilding, um, you know, mentality was in that one gym. It's about being the advocate. It's about being the parkour mentality, worrying about your entire tribe. So when our community is saying we want to keep the gyms open, it's not because Nick wants to sit in the corner counting his money from his membership. It's because Nick understands that if we shut down the gym, that's a very positive coping mechanism for some of your gym members that are going through shit right now. And this is their, their way of releasing. It's their tribe. It's their community. It's the way of, you know, getting some of that, the, you know, the, the stress hormones out of your body by doing a good workout. It's the way of, you know, of, you know, feeling better about yourselves for the man or the woman that's single and is looking to, to start dating again. There's so many physical and mental elements that are so positive to the human experience. And by shutting those down, and yeah, we saw it in the UK, in, in Ocala here, our Chick-fil-A, which is a chicken restaurant, fried chicken restaurant, which I like going to once in a while, never stopped having a two-car deep line wrapped around whilst all our gyms were closed. So that is the thing. Is It's not a selfish thing. It's not about gym owners whining because of their 
business, even though, of course, that's a, that's an element too. You've got, you know, a roof to put over your head and family to feed, but it's understanding that it's not about the virus. It's about the nation's health. So if you shut down the very thing that is one of a very few parts of, of industry that's actually making a positive difference to the, the health of the country, that is an absolute disaster. I couldn't agree more. And that's, that's obviously the message that we've been pushing home for so long. And it, it is, you do find that people are very quick to say, what makes you different from, from the pubs, from the clubs? Why, why do you feel you should open? Like they're suffering just as much as you are financially. Fa- financially. And it's like, well, it's not that black and white at all. You know, it, it, we, we, we're looking at the health benefits side of things. I mean, the, the, there obviously is the economic side of things to take into consideration, but the the primary driver here is the health benefits, and you know this is why we've been pushing for this this workout to help out scheme because we've seen no endorsements of the health and fitness community or the health and fitness sector. Whilst you know we're in the middle of a health crisis, which which is terrifying to be honest, um, and you know what we what we've tried to put in front of government is the data in terms of you know the benefits of exercise which we know which we've known for years which is on the nhs website it's on the government website it's on the world health organization's website you know every, everywhere you look we know the benefits of exercise so we've, we've got that side covered we know that we have an obesity crisis we know that the national depression rates doubled we know that suicides are at an all-time high we know that child's mental health referrals are up at an all-time high we know that you know we, we've got all this information, and we've taken away sports and exercise from everybody, and then seen an increase in all these these negative. Um, you know, we're getting all this negative feedback with stats, which is to be expected. Um, but you know, I, I, as I as I've been saying recently, when we've been pushing this workout to help out scheme, we just need to look at both the the prevalence of COVID in our sector, which is low, and then look at the health benefits to the person, and then we look, especially here in the UK, with a, a public. Um, you know, a public health service, look at the savings that our industry contributes in terms of public health spending and the data that we've got, which is published by Sports England, which is, you know, it's a, a reputable organization. We save our country somewhere in the region of 24 billion per year in healthcare, healthcare spend. And that's just our sector. And, you know, just to give you a little breakdown on some of the stats, it's like 5.2 billion saved in just general healthcare savings. We save the country 3.6 billion in preventing 900,000 cases of type 2 di- diabetes per year. We save the country about 450 million in preventing 30 million uh, you know, general uh, appointments with doctors. You know, it, it's 24 billion per year. Now, you know, for you to endorse our industry or at least let us thrive, that you can't say that it is going to be detrimental to national health because all you've got to do is look at the, the, the stats. You know what I mean? If we look at the comorbidities of people who are, you know, are suffering you know, critically with COVID, they all have, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, underlying issues. And if we can, as an industry, if we're preventing, you know, say 900,000 cases of, of diabetes, type 2 diabetes per year, and diabetes and obesity are linked to, you know, your critical illness from COVID, why are we not endorsing this? You know, I mean, why, why have we not got behind this? Because not only would we be better in the nation's health, we'd be alleviating the strain off the National Health Service, and we'd be turning a profit by letting these industries thrive in what we'd save in healthcare spending. So there is no logical, you know, uh, uh, 
response to why we shouldn't be endorsing the health and fitness sector because you know it, it isn't just that we better health we're saving money we've got a low prevalence of, of COVID-19 we can reallocate that funding uh, that then finances into other areas like funding you know our, our funding better programs on nutritional education and whatever else maybe we could use it to incentivize the 90,000 job vacancies that we've got with our national health service you know we could we could reassign that money that we're saving in healthcare spending by letting our industry thrive and instead what we've seen is police heavy police presence gyms across the country we've seen outdoor gyms like uh, i've seen pull-up stations you know uh, chin-up bars covered in plastic and metal fencing and chains which is absolutely crazy because i i mean i've I've put so many videos on my instagram of, of fast food places that i've been past and delivery drivers are queuing outside you know in in lines just standing next to each other in these big queues and as you've said, we've had the same here with McDonald's with the, you know, the, 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 the queues going round the block to get into these venues. And we've got, we've allowed uh, garden centers to, to stay open here because they're essential. And we're finding that people are going there just to window shop because they're bored. So these places are packed full of people walking around, just looking at packets of seeds and plant pots just because they're bored. You've, they're taking, you know, I've seen pictures on social media and, and some bits I don't share because, you know, it's insensitive, but you're seeing full families go out with their kids for a walk around these centers just because they're that bored. So you're telling me we can pack indoors, we can queue by the dozens to get our, our, our fast food fixed, but a chin-up station in a park in the middle of nowhere where you would be training on your own, in outdoors, in the fresh air, bettering your physical and mental health, that is now a crime. That is that is that is criminal for you to do that now, for you to access that, that piece of metal in the park. Yeah. Um, and it, it's... It's crazy. Well, I just wanted to, to interject. One thing I've seen here, and I think I've seen the same in the UK, which I think has been, I mean, just disgusting. There's no other be- better word for it, is since this started, it's been absolutely blatant that, as you said, you know, the, the comorbidities are huge contributing factors to whether someone has an acute response, whether it's, you know, a critical or even deadly response to this virus. And what I've seen in the US is, there's there's been this fostering of the mentality that if you even have the audacity to say the word comorbidity, then you're a conspiracy theorist. You don't believe in this virus. Now, I know damn well I've got people on the show that have worked in ICUs and things that said when people get when, when these these already sick people get covid, it is horrendous and it's a horrible you know way to die. I mean, they get full of mucus and they, they basically suffocate to death. And now we're seeing, obviously, the medical community has done a great job of realizing there's some things that are much more effective than what they traditionally do in the ICU with a, you know, a, a, a respiratory patient like that. But by suppressing that conversation of comorbidities, you again have added fuel to the fire of closing gyms, all this stuff. Whereas if that had been the conversation at the beginning, if right from the beginning, which anyone with any common sense knows damn well, if you're already sick and you get a virus, there's a much greater chance you're going to get sicker or die, then gyms would have been supported. Local clean restaurants and local farms and everything that's going to contribute to health and, you know, and wellness would have been bolstered. That's where the, the support should have gone. And I found it so disgusting that you were basically a heretic if you, if you brought in comorbidities. How was it in, in the UK? Exactly the same. And that's, 
you know, it, it's been a very interesting situation. I don't think any of us have experienced anything like this before, where if you are proposing a wider conversation on the situation, like you're, you're not saying change this right now, you're saying let's have a wider conversation and informed debate about the pros and cons here. You are automatically demonized and labeled a conspiracy theorist for even wanting to have the conversation. And if we're, you know, we, 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 we claim to be a democratic society here in, in the UK, yet you are demonized if you want to have a conversation about these things. And, and the, the, the terrifying thing is that our government here have never published a full um, or even or even done one, for the best of my knowledge, a cost uh, benefit analysis to their approach that they're taking. And we, we asked our health minister at debate, will he publish the evidence of a cost benefit analysis that's taken place for closing gyms and health centers? And he point blank responded and said, no, we, we, we will not be uh, publicizing, uh, publicizing that. And that that is that is really worrying that we can't even have a wider conversation about this thing. And, you know, I, I'm I'm the same as you. I've never said COVID isn't serious or anything like that. I'm saying that the the measures that we're using to tackle this thing should be subject to scrutiny and criticism. And we should be having a, a public debate with the scientific literature in front of us and saying, right, what is the best way to do this? How can we tackle it? How can we bring down the severity of, of the response as a, as a country? And as you say, we've been labeled as conspiracy theorists by, you know, so many people, both politicians and press. And it's only 11, 12 months into this pandemic now that we're seeing a shift in, you know, the, the, the narrative with politicians and the media where now they're talking about it. We're a year into this thing, and now they're comfortable saying X amount of patients, you know, have X, Y, and Z comorbidities, and you know, could exercise of of help this? Did closing the gyms down have a negative effect? And we're seeing this everywhere now. We're we're, we're seeing this. You know, World Health Organization have come out and, and and stated, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z to you know to be better against um, better equip against COVID. You know, more sunlight, more exercise, good nutrition. We've seen it in the, you know, it, it, so many of these, you know, big hit and mainstream media outlets are now shifting how they're talking. Whereas six months ago, they were demonizing anybody who is to, to, to suggest that we have a bigger conversation about this as conspiracy theorists. And to think that that we're now going in a direction where we're making policies for our countries without actually having a conversation about the pros and cons is, you know, it, it, it's really, really, really worrying for me. Yeah, well, I was trying to think of a way of framing it for the average person to understand. And uh, I, I wrote a book last year, and it's funny because when right when I was finishing up, was kind of we were in this now. So I thought that was kind of a good closing thing with, with to to put this analogy in the I think it was the epilogue, is what they call it. Um, but so you have an invading army, okay, and you are the defending army. So situation one, that army standing in an open field. No protection. They're just in a field, and this invading army comes in, and you know they fight valiantly, but they ultimately get overrun. So that is, to me, the 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 the, the already sick individual that COVID attacks. Okay. Option two is that same exact army, the defending army, builds a castle, and they dig a moat, and they put spikes in the moat, and they have the boiling oil at the top, and the little slits in the stone where they can shoot their arrows from the protection. Okay, that time, the invading army comes in, but they're unsuccessful. Same exact defending army 
different out, excuse me, attacking army, different outcome because the defending army has built this bolster of health around them. And that's exactly how the human immune system is when they're, the body's in homeostasis. When we're not morbidly obese, when we're not in this, this state of constant inflammation, when we're not sleep deprived, like a lot of our responders and doctors excuse me, doctors and nurses are, which is why I think we're losing a lot of them. When when we are healthy men and women, these viruses, these bacteria come in and the miracle that is the human body is able to deal with it. But the moment we break the human body down through, nu- through lack of nutrition, through lack of exercise, through mental ill health, we become vulnerable. And when this virus or bacteria comes in, whether it's COVID, whether it's MRSA, whether it's HEPs, you know, B or C, whichever one it is that gets you, you are vulnerable. So understanding that this year should have been spent building that castle is the analogy that I'm trying to get people to understand. Yeah, that that, that analogy is absolutely perfect. And you know, there's you will see. I mean, government could come back and say, "Look, we close the gyms because they are too much of a risk." Now, let's. I mean, I disagree with that, but let's say that you are right. That's perfectly fine. Why have you not then? encouraged healthy eating and exercise at home like if your argument is that gyms you know are beneficial and they help for national health and national mental health physical health they help you know alleviate the strain from hospitals but we have to close them because they're too too dangerous to open okay let's say that's the case why have you then not put appropriate um funding and appropriate airtime into promoting good nutrition and exercise at home there has been a suppression of exercise and nutrition and the benefits of both across the board, not just because they think they should be closed and locked down because of the risk, but there has been no mention of it whatsoever. And we have, we have the BBC here in the UK and we pay however much it is per month or per year to have this ad free, you know, BBC one, BBC two channel on our TV. There's no ads and it's all, you know, it's all paid for by what we contribute, which I think they take, they take billions in payments every year. And this is our basically our government's outlet to push what they need to to the people. Now it would have cost them, I don't know, 30, 40 pounds, you know, $40 to have a personal trainer come on and do an hour's worth of, you know, an exercise class at home, which could have been broadcast to millions of people across the country for the sake of, of 30, 40 pounds. We didn't see any of that whatsoever. All we seen was, you know, the the usual crap that you see on daytime tv and you know the press are just putting in adverts for discounted fast food and everything else why has there been no mention at all in any way or any format of how important sunlight is of how important good nutrition is and how important exercise is even if it's just a case of you jumping up and down in your living room do you know what i mean if we're going to go along with the narrative that gyms the risk of gyms outweighs the benefits okay well why aren't you encouraging people to exercise at home why aren't you subsidizing home gym equipment you know, what it, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that they have completely suppressed any conversation about this side of things. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that's another thing that's really pissed me off is if if we now understand that, then where's the conversation about, especially here in the US, like not spraying our food in chemicals, not serving fast food to our children in their formative years in schools? I don't know if Jamie Oliver had a positive lasting effect in the British schools, but he failed here. I'd love to get him on. I think he'd be amazing. But what he was trying to do was, was a solution. And so instead in America, this, you know, morbidly obese population that we have, we groom our children to be overweight and miserable from kindergarten. 
You know, so where's those conversations? Where's putting the finance back in so we can put PE and, you know, sporting, uh, sports back into the schools that have been cut? You know, I mean, all these areas that if, if there's an understanding finally that that's the case, like you said, put your money where your mouth is. Instead, Joe Wicks, a random, random trainer, ends up doing it himself and everyone jumps on it. Well, like you said, imagine if that had been the BBC. You have a captive audience. I love the BBC. You know, I, don't, I, I heard it's changed a little bit. But overall, compared to the TV here, like you said, ad-free, you have an opportunity to filter the most amazing health and wellness information to the men, women, and children of the UK. What a fucking waste that you didn't. It's been a year of captive audience. You know, so that's the thing is... is it's it's all lip service. And the same as you said about applauding. One of my guests a while ago, they, they nailed it. Now, you know what happens when you applaud for the, the NHS and the, and the police and the fire? You basically clean your hands of any responsibility and you put it squarely on the doctors, nurses and paramedics of, of the UK. And absolutely true. It didn't cost a penny to say, everyone, go, go outside and clap. Good job. No, that's that's a fucking slap in the face is what it is. What you need to do is bolster the that. You've had a year to inject money into the NHS and get as many men and women as you can on there so you alleviate the stress and put these hospitals back to, to the point where they're not straining from, from the demand and then keep it there. Don't cut it the moment this thing's done again like we've seen even in New York. They had a whole bunch of EMTs go in and they, they cut them the moment it started dipping down. So it is so important that the people, the people, see what these... <sighs> Again, I, I, I'm not going to use the word leaders. These these politicians that are that are find themselves in these positions because there's no better illustration of whether your country has been led well. I would say New Zealand and actually Guernsey, which I want to get to in a second, um, or very poorly, like we've seen in in many other countries, than this last year. So use this last year to educate yourself. Do these people actually give a shit about you? And if not, fucking get rid of them and let's start getting some real leaders in these positions that care about the, the nation's health overall. Yeah, and that's. I think it comes down to to responsibility, and you know, taking well, taking responsibility for ourselves and what happens to a degree further than we're used to doing. Both in the respects of taking care of our own health and taking responsibility for how we eat and how how we exercise. Because you know, at the end of the day, government governments are responsible for making it easier for us to make these poor choices. But at the end of the day, it is us that are making these poor choices, and there needs to be. There needs to be a meet in the middle from both us as the people and government's responsibility to its citizens of getting us all on the right track. We can do our bit. Government should be doing their bit. And I, and I think, I, you know, when we spoke the other day, I touched briefly on, you know, the, the stores here in the UK and when I've been over to the States, you know, and, and I've seen it in you know multiple states. When you go into a store, you see aisles and aisles of variety of sweets and chocolates and, you know, candies, whatever you want to call it. Aisles and aisles and aisles of variety. Um, I, I think I remember going to, to to one one big store in uh, in Miami, and there was a, a a length a length of an aisle with Oreo varieties longer than I've, I've seen aisles of any food in 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 the UK. But even ours are poor. Do you know what I mean? And then when I travel out east, and I go to Eastern Europe, and I go to Asia, the the options available in these stores for these types of foods are a tenth of what they are here, and is it, you know, is it coincidence that the obesity rates and the overall, you know, hospitalization rates in those countries are significantly lower than ours, given that they take care of their nutrition 
and they exercise more and they you know i visited friends in uh in romania at the start of last year um and i, I think i asked him you know do you want do you want any snacks or you know do you want a mcdonald's or whatever and he, he looked at me as if i'd spat at him you know he's like he's like what you know we we don't eat that crap here do you know what i mean we we, we live good um and that that was that was a bit of a wake up call to how different we are because we normalize it here in the UK and I'm sure you do in the US. You know we normalize the way that we are, but when you visit other places, you see that it's not normal. We are abusing our bodies, and you know governments and these corporations are making it so easy for us to do it. And we, you know, by nature we find it difficult to resist. So we need them to take away, you know, so many options and to push education on the right choices. And then we need off the back of that to take responsibility for our own health. You know, and make the right choices with the right guidance. And if we can do that, as you say, if we can get the right leaders in who are willing to work with the people, and we as the people work with those leaders, we could we could turn our countries around. You know, in in a short space of time, in only in only a, a few years, we could turn the national health around to something significantly more positive. Yeah. Well, so I've had I try and get people from different countries that I think are doing things incredibly well. So Portugal, you know, with their drug decriminalization, I've had. Like I mentioned, the, the prison governor from Bastoy in Norway. Um, I had Passy Salberg, who was one of the, the, the speakers on the Finnish um, education system. So that's what's so, so infuriating is there are countries around the world that are doing so many elements so well. And I always say the NHS in the UK is the best healthcare system when it's funded properly. It is. The fact that here we have 80-year-old men and women standing on the doors of Walmart welcoming people because they can't afford their health insurance. Now, there's a few that probably want to do it socially as well, and I get that, but there's probably a lot more fun things you can do socially than standing in a Walmart. You know, you can go volunteer or whatever. So my thing is this, the solutions are out there, and the ownership thing always comes in. Oh, well, that person's fat because they eat too much. You know, well, that person's an addict. Why don't you just stop, like you said? Well, there is absolutely a, an ownership element you know i i am not obese you know i'm one of the very lucky ones that 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 has good genetics and also you know the the way i was parented obviously led to me not being overweight however there's also the environment so if you create an environment that that the illicit drug trade thrives then it's a lot easier for a young man or woman to become an addict or a gangbanger or a pusher or a smuggler if you eliminate that that's not even an option anymore if you have an environment where there's a fast food store on every single corner, are you more likely to have an obese population? Absolutely you are. So yes, ownership comes in it, but the leadership element is that you create an environment for people to thrive. So if you ha if you grow up in a country where you're taught about food in school, your exercise in school, you support, you know, the, the food in your town all comes from local farms, which has not got pesticides on. You know, the, the, the kind of exercise level is high. People walk a lot. There's, is, you know, there's, it, there's a lot of pedestrian areas. I mean, all these things contribute to a healthy society. If you have a country like where I live now, where fast food is an absolute thing, where we have a profit-based healthcare system, where companies make billions and billions off the ill health of American people, that's not an environment for people to thrive. So the problem is you get the ownership versus environment. And as you said, it's both. But if we want our people to have ownership, create an environment that forges ownership. Definitely. And I, I think the emphasis needs to be on education, doesn't it? And you, you, you know, you, when you mentioned Jamie Oliver earlier, that is, 
exactly what the problem is. Why, why had it been left to a TV chef to, you know, change the nutritional value of school meals? And, you know, as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong here. Like, like Jamie Oliver's, um, qualifications with regards to you know nutrition and stuff like that. I don't think it's extensive but we have health ministers we have you know we have a full array of you know health advisors for our government why did it take a, a celebrity tv chef to say hang on what are we doing to our children here what why are we doing this 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 is the public schools uh, the, the you know the, the the government's own school system why did it take a, a tv chef to come in and say what are you what are you doing to these kids you know why why is it taking somebody like him and it's great that he, he did, but I'm saying, you know, why did it need somebody like that to step in when we have all of these advisors that we're paying, you know, big bucks for every single year? Why hasn't one of them said, hang on, child obesity is at an all time high, which it is. Why are we not looking at the nutrition that we're giving these kids in school? Why are we not giving them more, you know, physical education, more, more, more time to exercise and take part in sports? You know, why is that not coming from from government? I don't know if it's the same over in the US, but we don't see an emphasis on nutrition or exercise here in the U- in the UK in the school system. And that's, you know, it's troubling that we're, we're putting these children into a, a mindset that that's the norm. You know, you can eat wh- wherever crap that you want. You know, you don't don't exercise. It needs to take place in sport. Uh, you know, there's no real medical or health need. Uh, to take part in sports or exercise and then you leave school and no wonder it's hard to break these habits after 18 years of nutritional neglect and exercise neglect and then all of a sudden you know you, you are you know thrust into a world that encourages fast food at every opportunity and you know now as we say in the COVID situation we're suppressing exercise and we're, we're still not emphasizing the need for education and education starts with with children you know what why why are we not helping our children out better to make it easier for them later in life to make the right decisions and, and you know it, it's it's that's a, a one of the biggest failures i think of our schooling system here in the uk at least anyway yeah and like i said there there are there are solutions we don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, we do like i said the actual blueprint of the nhs is phenomenal and that's something we have to offer the world the, the uk does Norway has prisons. Portugal has drugs. You know, I mean, there's all these areas. So we just go to those countries, which other countries have done and said, Hey, Finland, what is it that's doing, you're doing so differently that's creating the highest education levels on planet Earth? And then when you look at it, they actually look at children as holistic, you know, little people. So it's not about, you know, test scores and, and, um, justifying schools and, and stats. It's actually, the, the whole child and developing them, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually to be functioning adults when they leave. So there are so many solutions out there, but so many of our countries are so arrogant that they think they're best in the world. You know, my one uses that phrase all the time and it's bullshit. No, we're not. No, A, it's not a competition. B, how can you be the best in the world at everything? And, you know, certainly check your stats because you'll see that you're absolutely not. Um, but, you know, so it's, um, you know, patriotism, be proud of your country, be proud of, I mean, I'm proud of coming from the UK. I'm proud of living in the U S. Um, but if we all learn from each other, every single country on planet earth can elevate themselves. But if we are arrogant and, and have that, we're the best mentality without putting any of the work in, you're going to find yourself, as you said, not only slipping, um, within, 
within your nation, but even being vulnerable compared to other countries and finding it maybe not even being a first world country anymore. You know, if you're, if you're that arrogant that you never improve and your, your nation gets sicker and sicker and your workforce gets smaller and smaller, there's, there's a huge, you know, global economic element to that too. Yeah, and we put we put far too much emphasis on you know financial resources and GDP being what defines a country being successful, as we touched on earlier. And you know that that's a very dangerous way to go, just measuring a a, a country's you know a country's level of success just by you know it, its GDP or how how much it's got sitting in reserves. When you know there is more than just the economy going on. You know, we, we, we have the social side of things, the health side of things, and all of them need to be measured together. And if we're going to continue to get lost, you know, Western civilization is going to get continue to be lost in the fact that we make the most money, therefore we are the best. Mm, you could enslave an entire country and put them to work 16 hours a day. And you could, you know, you could have the, the, the largest economic output in the world. Are you still the greatest? Certainly not. You've suppressed your entire country. Do you know what I mean, we look. We look at. I don't know. For, for argument's sake, look at Germany in the Second World War and how much they were producing in, ter- in terms of you know material goods. Were they the the greatest? Well, no, of course they weren't. People were dying. People were being enslaved. You know, we, we need to be looking at the full spectrum of you know the, the the economic side of things, the social side of things, the health side of things, and you know we need to break that down to to children and hospitalization rates and everything else, and then we measure how successful we are and. To think that any one country is doing anything right, everything right, is extremely naive. We can all learn from each other. I don't know about you, but I don't know one single person that I've met in my life in any country that has been 100% perfect and has everything nailed. You know, and and, I, and I've said this a few times. There is not one person that I've met, and there's not one other. And I use it in the gym context as well. There's not one other gym that I've been to where I don't go there and think I want to take this idea because this could make my place one percent better, or I can take a story from any person whatsoever. And I can utilize that to benefit myself. Do you know what I mean? Even if it's just to make for more interesting conversation in future, there is something that you can take from any person in any situation and turn that into a, a positive. If you're willing to be objective and accept the fact that nobody, no country, no person, no business is 100% perfect. And we've all got room to improve and we should not be ashamed of that. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, one thing I want to put in, you know, to, for you, but also for people listening, because it's, it's crazy. I didn't know about it, but in my defense, I'm in the US now, but no one in the UK has heard this that I've spoken to either, but the success that Guernsey had. So the island of Guernsey, which is funny because you were on Jersey, so close to, <laughs> close to there. And from what I understand, their successes are very different because they, Jersey didn't do what Guernsey did, but they were proactive. So Guernsey in their, their hierarchy at the top, um, had, I think it's an epidemiologist, if I'm not mistaken, but, but, you know, an expert in that field. And they had pre-planned and they had they basically at a, at a, you know, a planning level rehearsed what would happen if they had a pandemic. When it hit, and this is coming from a, a, a guy I had on Pete that was, uh, there's a firefighter on there. They locked down immediately because it wasn't a surprise. You know, they, they'd obviously been following it from China and they knew it was, it was of a certain significance and lesser known fact by June, by June, they were back to normal. When I say normal, no masks, no social distancing, normal, normal. Now, yes, Guernsey is a smaller island, but you think about it, Britain and Ireland are also two rocks in the middle of the ocean. So even though I think the US would struggle with this kind of thing because we're such a giant landmass, 
the UK, and, and, and if you look at Japan's been very successful, New Zealand's been very successful. So comparatively, the UK has been horrendous. But so Guernsey basically controlled their borders. When people came in, they were, they were forced to isolate for, I think it was 13 days. Um, and then they could go about the island, you know, as normal. Ironically, when I had, um, him on that day, they'd had a case. They just locked down and now they've come out of it again. So, and no one had an issue with it because they trusted their leaders. It had worked the first time and then it worked the second time. So that when you talk about taking, um, ideas from other countries, a little island in the U, you know, basically part of the UK had huge success and no one in the UK even heard that story, which is terrible. Yeah, we, we we don't see it, and they. <clears throat> I don't know whether it's malicious that they're they're hiding stories like this, or whether they're trying to discourage people breaking what they think is the best thing to do. You know, with these these staggered lockdowns, and you know, we we've we've just fumbled ourselves from you know one plan to another, and and that the level of public trust in governments, you know, it, it has plummeted month after month after month for the simple fact that they will come out on a Monday and say this is the plan. And then Tuesday, it'll be, that's no longer the plan. This is the new plan. And then you obviously you're sat there thinking, well, you clearly don't have a plan if you're changing your plan every day and you're not giving it enough time to, to pan out. And, you know, with, with you referring to Gaines, they had a plan and they stuck to the plan and they give the plan enough time to see if it worked or not. And they found great success. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's, that's the kind of thing we should be hearing, you know, even if we don't even if we don't adopt the same approach to them, we should be acknowledging the fact that they have a, a specific plan and they're giving it enough time to, you know, to, just to see what results, you know, it, it will yield and it's, and it's worked for them. And in the UK, and I, I don't know if it's similar in the US, they have changed their mind so many times. And, and we have, you know, we, we, we have committees that discuss these and we, we you know, we've been doing research into, into pandemics and viruses and uh, for, for, for years and years and years. So why did we not even have this, the, you know, the smallest set of basic plans in place to the point where we're now changing our plan every three, four, five days, there should have been a plan in place. This is, this is how viruses act, which we, which we've known for decades. This is how we're going to respond. And this will take approximately so much time for it to work and we have to let it happen. Now in the UK, we have just seen, we've seen policy change and plan change every single week. And, and the level of conf confidence from the public has just plummeted because there is no, they can't stand up and address the nation and say, we have a plan when, you know, they clearly don't. And, I, and I'm sure Guernsey's people have both, you know, re respect and appreciation for the government, but not only that, they have confidence in their government because they had a plan, they had it ready. They put the plan in place and, you know, as you say, look where they are. They, they, they've enjoyed time with their family long before we've been able to, you know, spend time with ours. Yeah. I mean, I'm still waiting to go see my, I haven't seen mine in two years and my grandmother's 103. So will I get back in time to see her, you know, before she, she passes? Who knows? I hope, I hope so. I hope she lives to be 133, but you know, that this, there's that element too. But another interesting thing, and I want to segue to you having COVID is, the horrendous um, media coverage during all this too. Now, one of the most crazy things that I get asked all the time is, oh my God, how is it in Florida? I heard it's terrible over there. And you're standing in Florida where everything is absolutely fine. Now, when I say fine, of course, people are still contracting it. Some of the sick people are still passing away. That's not fine. But when we're talking about um, a uh, numbers that warrant shutting down, you know, a country or a state, no, we're, we're, there's, 
no you know real spike here aside from as you said there's always a seasonal spike and if you look at the moment there's no flu cases at the moment <laughs> magically covid secure a flu um but no i mean my my fellow doctors and nurses and 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 medics there are some small spikes in the very densely populated areas occasionally but overall florida's done very well and our governor to his credit we our gyms closed down for a bit and i want to say we started filtering out again i think it was june july um and he stuck by it but you would think that florida was just littered with corpses the way everyone outside florida those news agencies are reporting how we're doing so tell me about when you got covid19 and how how that story was was put across to the public once you saw it published this is uh yeah so if if we weren't already one million percent aware of the media manipulation at this point this is when it become extremely apparent um i contracted covid end of november beginning of december last year um i got the virus i'll be honest i, I wasn't aware that i had it uh my camera guy had it uh, he experienced symptoms. He said, look, uh, I've been tested. I'm positive. We, we, you know, we'd spent a lot of time together in the week and three weeks running up to him being positive. We'd spent nearly every day together. Um, so, you know, I, I got checked, I tested, I was positive. I had a, a high temperature for one night and it don't get me wrong. It was a high temperature. I was sweating in the bed. Um, second night, slightly high temperature after that, nothing. I had two days of a high temperature. My taste went for a few days and I had nothing whatsoever in terms of symptoms at all. Um, and the press got a hold of it. And the first two, and keep in mind, like five national newspapers covered the fact that I had COVID. Why that's why it's relevant whatsoever for me, just a random guy to have COVID, but five national uh, uh, press outlets covered this. And the way that they worded it was so out of context. The head, so bear in mind, in October, I had kept my gym open and we had the petition. We kept it over for the right reasons. We had the, we had the petition. We had the debate. We had national policy changed twice. So that was entirely separate to this. This is two months on. And now we're in national lockdown again now. So my gym is closed. Press is, the press title, man who refuses to close gym catches COVID-19 implying that I'd caught it in my gym because I'd recklessly stayed open, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic. Now the reality is my gym was, you know, it, it was, it was closed for the most part of, uh, the year. And then when it come to, sorry, you know, when I, when I contracted COVID, I wasn't even, uh, in the country. We were in, uh, Spain for three weeks. We were, we were shooting over there. We had a, a project over there for an app that we're building at the minute. So we, we've been there for three weeks. I'd come back home. Um, and that's when I found out I was positive. That's why me and my camera guy had been together every single day. So we'd come back home. I hadn't been in the gym and I, and I, I even said to the press when they reached out to me, you know, do you want to make a comment before we run with it? I was like, yeah, just letting you know, I haven't been in the gym. And if you would like me to verify that just, just, you know, for public confidence, my, our camera systems log the last six months. So I've got six months worth of CCTV to show you that I've not been in my gym. Therefore I have not caught it in my gym. You know, the only place that I've been is A away, and I don't think we caught it there. And the only place I've been since we come home 
was the supermarkets. And I'll be honest, the reason I hadn't been in the gym is because I, I was suffering from the blues being back in the UK, to be honest, because we just come from sunny Spain where, you know, I mean, I mean, they, and they, they had some like strong COVID policies over there, you know, with the, the mask mandate and everything else. Um, but it was just, you know, it was, just, it was being outside, being outdoors in the sun. I felt great. I come back home, you know, I was depressed for a few days, didn't go in the gym. So I relayed all this to the press and then they come out with that headline straight away. Man refuses to close gym, catches COVID. And they kind of alluded to the, to the real story below. They didn't lie. I mean, because the title in itself isn't a lie, is it? Let's be honest. I did refuse to close my gym. I did catch COVID. But to put them in the same sentence is entirely misleading. But they can say it's not a lie. Well, it's not. But you're misleading millions of people into thinking that I caught it in my gym. And that was because I was being reckless. And that's not the case whatsoever. And then they also stated that uh, Nick had come under fire on social media for um, expressing that he doesn't feel the risk of COVID to healthy people is as high as it's made out to be. Now, I'd never said them exact words to anyone anywhere ever, and I hadn't received any criticism for that whatsoever. The only thing I received criticism from, which is, which is something that I had some hate for, was for wearing a mask in a hotel. I, I was bombarded with abuse from the, from the anti-mask brigade hmm. for being conformist government spy all this nonsense. <laughs> that's the only thing yeah that's that's the only thing I, I i get paid apparently i'm on official salary from our prime minister to take pictures of myself in a hotel wearing a mask to encourage people to wear masks i'm, I'm, a, I'm a government spy this is this, this is a genuine conspiracy that's believed by many people um but that's the only thing i receive criticism for and my all everything that i share on my social media and i i had i did have a, a, a story highlight and I took a lot of it off my social media now because it, it was really getting me depressed. But I was taking testimonies from our, our NHS workers and our police and our firemen. And as part of the process, they had to send me their ID, their NHS ID or their police ID, which is a big risk for them. Obviously, I didn't share that, but that was to verify that their testimony was legit. And they took trust in me. And I had the best part of 100 testimonies on there from everybody within there saying, look, we're in the ICU, you know, everyone that we see is either, you know, they're, they're in their 80s or the 70s and they've got, you know, so many comorbidities. And I was sharing testimonies on both sides. It was just, look, the press is saying one thing, let's get it from the boots on the ground, let's get it from the police, let's see how they feel about, you know, having to go to these local businesses. And the, the picture that was, the picture we were getting from, you know, those who were, who were serving in these public services was so much different to what we were hearing in the press. Not in terms of severity, but they were just, they were happy to share the fact that they do have comorbidities. The police were happy to say that they were uncomfortable enforcing these laws. Um, you know, and, and we had so much from paramedics and so much was taken out of context. We had one of our, one of our hospitals was the picture was taken where they had ambulances backing up outside and the press covered it as hospital overspill, ambulances backing up outside. And I, I don't know about there, but I spoke to a, a few paramedics here and they were saying, no, no, no. We, we changed procedure to isolate people in the ambulances outside so that they were COVID secure when we transport them through the hospital. So that's why the ambulances were waiting outside. This is from a guy who sent me his ID, who works at that hospital, part of the, you know, the, 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 the ambulance division. But the press covered it completely different. And it was never downplay the severity of COVID. It's just let, let's have a little bit of context. What do we need to be aware of? You know, what, what, what don't we need to be aware of? Well, what's actually happening and how can we do this better? And as you say, you're quick to be called a conspiracy theorist if you question, you know, the, the, the narrative of it. But, you know, you can see just from that example and from my example how much the press want to manipulate it just so they can get 
clicks and you know more ad spend and whatever else and I, I I can't see how these these entities aren't being held accountable for causing mass hysteria and huge division in communities for pro this anti that like let let's just stop pointing the finger at each other and let's just have a a, a data driven conversation let's just have a let's have a civilized conversation of this is the problem this is how we plan on tackling it this is the success that we found and these are ways that that didn't work and let's try and do it better why why can't we have a civilized conversation anymore why has everything got to be so far left or so far right or pro this or anti that why can't we just have an educated conversation data driven and assess the best way forward instead of the mani- the media manipulating everything which then by default changes public perception in a certain way which then forces politicians to act in a certain way so they can be seen to be acting in the best interests of the people it's just one big nasty circle of manipulation and you know things being taken out of context yeah no i agree 100 percent. and as, as a, a medic i was just nauseated by these these videos of oh the, there's patients in the hallway any any medic that's worked any sort of urban setting i'm sure in the uk definitely in the us we have held the wall for hours my whole career with a patient in a hallway on a stretcher with lots of other medics with lots of other stretchers and lots of other patients all waiting for that one bed so you take that you know that overrun inner city hospital and you add anything a flu ep- epidemic you know i mean god forbid some sort of you know accident or or shooting or something you're immediately going to have an overrun hospital so it was such irresponsible reporting because was you know new york overrun yeah they have so many people in new york they have to build the the buildings up into the sky so it doesn't take much to overwhelm a hospital so no one's saying that the hospitals weren't overwhelming but are these numbers that warrant shutting down an entire planet i don't think so absolutely not and and you know when i ask my my fellow medics and doctors and nurses they're like yeah we in our covid wards we had but i've had a lot of people that have told me that they went there as part of a group that set up a, a an extra hospital area under a giant tent outside that never even got used or they didn't have the staffing to even do it you know so the reporting and the facts are completely you know distorted completely unrelated and yes it's yes and yes yes covid is horrible and if you get it you have anywhere from a runny nose through to death and no one wants to be in that side but like you said there's elements that can control your survivability from your own personal health but when you start spreading that fear you are making people more vulnerable to a more extreme reaction to that virus because now they're scared they're they're staying inside they're not getting sunlight they're eating like shit they're not moving and so we're making them more likely to get sick or die so that's what i found so disgusting and the reality is the most of these news agencies not the bbc but certainly the cnns and foxes and all the ones that we have over here their only goal is to sell advertising space between their shitty news stations. So the more they sensationalize, the more they fearmonger, the the more they can sell their fucking Pepsi 60-second ad for. You know what I mean? So again, like you said, it's ownership. The less of us that buy their shitty papers or watch their shitty stations, the less power they're going to have. So educated and angry. We have to come out of this looking at what the media has done in certain areas of the media this last year and ask ourselves, is that something that we want to allow in our country or are we going to demand change in that area too? 
Yeah, and we, we, we've seen evidence of that very recently in the US. In fact, you know, with, with some of the guys that I follow on on Twitter, some of the politicians your side, they seem, you know, just, just to see how much these media outlets thrive off controversy. We've seen, obviously, the blackouts of, of Donald Trump in recent months. And the, the, the view count for the biggest stations over there that you just referenced have dropped by 30% just since taking Donald Trump out of the picture and the controversy that comes with him. Like they, they feed off this. And obviously the higher their viewers are, the more they can the more value they can put on that ad space, which means they need controversy. And you know, it, it, it shouldn't be permitted, especially not in a time of a, a national high, uh, health crisis, a pandemic. And to go back to what you said in reference to New York, we've seen the same with London. We've seen the press covering London ICUs overwhelmed, operating at 120% capacity. You know, everybody's everybody's going to die. Um, but there was no context. Now, if we add context to that, London is a city with 8 million or so inhabitants, right? There is There were about 4,000 ICU beds at the time. And that equates to what, 0. whatever percent of, of the population of London, or, you know. So to think that, you know, we would be surprised at, you know, the ICU being overwhelmed in a city of 8 million with 4,000 beds isn't isn't particularly surprising at all. But you don't get given that context. And not only that, it specifies on our NHS website now, as you were saying earlier, earlier on, that we weren't using ICU ventilator um, ventilate, ventilations. Sorry, in, in, in the ITU, we weren't you, we weren't going straight to ventilators anymore to you know to, to to try and bring people back around because it was seen as too invasive. We switched to oxygen therapy, and it states this on the NHS website that we no longer go to uh, the ventilators for you know the, the the first measure. We're putting people on normal wards, and we're giving them oxygen therapy. And we found that that's a, a much better solution than just putting people straight on ventilators, which can can cause issues with with permanent issues with the, with the lungs. But we don't see that. We just see ICU at 120% capacity. Well, hang on. If the NHS is saying that we're not really using the ICU anymore and we're, we're treating people on normal wards, why aren't we seeing the normal ward stats and bringing attention to the to the real problem is that we were running low on oxygen. It's not that we were struggling, you know, particularly more with ICU than we normally do. And, and, and you know, there was an image circulating on social media, which, which I think was quite interesting. And it was the Guardian newspaper and the headlines from 2007 through to 2020. And it's, you know, it's a snapshot of every year lined up next to each other. And every single year it states NHS at breaking point. And this is in the winter of every year because it is a breaking point every single year. Are we saying that COVID isn't an issue and the, and the hospitals are, are overwhelmed? No, we are not. We are saying that this has been an issue for 15 or you know more than 15 years of understaffing underfunding yes it's a serious situation but this should be the wake up call that we need to then properly fund these services you know and if we, if we give some context to that maybe maybe we we'd actually get there and we'd get you know the public behind funding these services better instead of saying hospitals are overwhelmed this year because of covid well, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed every year and as you say you know we, we have patients and i mean i've spoke to so many nurses and doctors and you know people working in icu they have people waiting in the corridors every single winter you know when we come into flu season and i'm not saying covid is the same as the flu but i'm saying these, these are issues that we're seeing year on year that we need to be working towards making better by by prevention and by better managing our hospitals and better funding our hospitals and why, why have we permitted media to take this so out of context and, and 
you know, it, I, I don't understand why it's allowed. I don't understand why it's even legal to create mass hysteria like this. Because if, if you were to pass out false information and it was to lead to mass hysteria, which would then lead, lead to people, you know, hating each other and everything else, so you should be held accountable. And you probably would, and I probably would, but but the press can do it, and the and the politicians can do it. Like, why why is it even legal for them to do that? And as you say, you, you are making people more likely to to catch this virus. You are compromising their immune system by creating fear, by stressing them out. You know, the cortisol levels are through the roof. Their immune system drops. You know, we, we are we are making a breeding ground for COVID just by you know pushing this this mass hysteria and. You know, you've only got to look at some studies. I was watching a, a TED talk uh, last week on the placebo effect with medicines, and we, and we do see that it is a very real thing. That if people believe they're taking a drug with a specific purpose, then they can actually have the desired effect. Like we don't understand it fully, but all the studies that have been done, double blinds and whatever else, it shows it's real. So if you can go that way with it, if you're that convinced that you're stressing and you're going to get critically ill, what's to say that you can't go that way with it as well? What's to say that you being in that mindset of I'm screwed. I'm going to die. I'm going to get critically ill. What's to say that that's not then going to contribute to you actually having a, a you know a, a really harsh experience with COVID? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, you basically that's what we're talking about with the secret. You're manifesting, but in a, in a negative way. Um, but I think so. So one thing, just to kind of round this off, and then we'll go to some closing questions. I did a video uh, a few weeks ago, and basically called it "Now You Had the Vaccine." All right. You got vaccinated. Okay, you put a shot in your arm, you had an immune response to that particular virus. Okay, so not the flu, not everything else that's floating around trying to kill you, just that one. Now what? So it's the same kind of philosophy as we should have had a year ago, assume you're going to get it. So the only way we're going to actually improve the the response next time is a double-edged sword it's improving the health of the nation and it's bolstering you know fire police ems you know the national health so that we are able to to do it so you have two tangible easy fixes to make sure this never happens again create a healthier population and actually create a health service that has that that buffer so if we do have some huge event whether it's the manchester bombing whether it's covid whatever it is that we have the men and women that are skilled and we're not working them into the ground and we have a you know maybe some some uh i don't think on locums but you know a, a another group of men and women that you can call in that maybe you're you know on call whether they retire whatever it is so that we have that kind of pre-plan but the huge one is obviously affecting the health of the nation what worries me is you have the shot, whether people believe in the shot or not. And it's funny because I always say with the shot, we're being asked to, to, to believe the two groups of people that none of us believe, which is drug companies and politicians. But assuming it's safe, assuming it's good. And I'm not an anti-vax person. I just, you know, how can we not question it? Um, you had your shot. Okay. Good. And let's say it does do what everyone is hoping that it does what's next? And I think that's something that people need to be asking now. Oh, I have my shot. Now we can go back to normal. No, normal was shit. We just realized that because everything fell apart with what you called normal as soon as we had a virus come into our world. So what are we going to do? So, you know, if if you were president, prime minister for a day, what should we do from here on in? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, I think given given the stats that I mentioned earlier in terms of what we what, what exercise and proper nutrition saves our countries in healthcare spending and and 
you know, obviously here in the UK, we, we have our, our national health service. So it's, it's saving the government money, which by extension is saving the public money. But even in the US, if you're saving, you know, if you're better in your health, then there is less need for you to have, you know, such extensive private health care or to have such high excesses on there because you've got pre-existing conditions. So if, if we're going to if we're going to really try and help people's health and not just look at profit margins, then we should be putting proper funding and resources into education as I, as i say not not just in schools but throughout the workplace we should be subsidizing healthier foods as you say we should be sourcing them from places that aren't lacing them in tons of preservatives you know we, we should be limiting the amount of traffic that we're allowing in you know urban cities because the pollution is you know is it, through the roof and you know we, we've seen that since obviously since the lockdowns you've i'm sure you've seen that you know the the maps from above with the um with the pollution in terms of pre-lockdown and then through lockdown, you know, we, to think that we're breathing that air in and out on top of everything else, you know, we, we just need a, 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 a change in narrative and a change in approach from both, you know, US government and UK government to say, look, we're going to do this now in the interests of longevity and knowing that this is going to happen in future, we're going to work with you. We're going to, you know, we're going to sit down and we're going to have some healthy public debate. And I don't think it should be a left and right situation. I think we should be getting professionals who are qualified in their industries to have a healthy conversation on television in front of the public. And then we can make our decisions based, you know, from that. What do we do next? Let, let, let's get the top dietitians, nutritionists, <clears throat> sports scientists. Let's get everybody together, people who are actually qualified. Because I mean, I don't know about the U.S., but here our health minister who's advisor to the government doesn't have a single qualification in anything relevant to health. His, his qualification is in economics and, you know, that's his degree. He has nothing to do with health. He has no qualifications in health. So why we would have him having this discussion with somebody on the opposite side who is equally underqualified, you know, it, it doesn't really, you know, there's, there's no logic there whatsoever. So let's get the, the top professionals in each industry. Let's get them to, together. Let's, you know, let's have some sort of a, of a union and say, what's the best way that we can move forward emphasize you know good education on nutrition more exercise let, let let's subsidize you know outlets for exercise and we can move forward and we can we want to see a shift in i mean i, I know this is quite extreme but I, I would quite like to see more um more involvement on government's part in managing how much we promote fast food in you know uh, across our media outlets and how much we're allowed to advertise to children and you see we've got asda here which is a, a, a one of the um one of the under companies of walmart i believe uh, they they've now taken a lot of their fancy branding off the kids chocolates and stuff like that to stop enticing kids into buying these things you know they've stopped putting the, the, the nice animals on the on the chocolates and stuff like that and i think that's a good start and I think we should we should encourage that across the board. You know, similar to what we did with smoking here in the UK, and I'm not so sure about the US. You know, with the, with what they've done with the packaging and whatever else. Now, you know, as an adult, it's probably not going to put you off if you're already a smoker. But if you can get to children early enough that they're not seeing, you know, these fancy colours and knowing that that's going to give them, a, you know, a dopamine response from the sugar that they're intaking, I think we could get it really early. And I, I think if we work together. Us as the people and with our governments and, you know, change the emphasis to pro-health rather than, you know, pro-medication and pro-prevention. You know, I, I think we'll see a really positive turnaround. And, you know, as we've said, not just in, in this conversation, but in, you know, in recent days, 
you know, that we are primed now. We are, we are ready. We're all aware of the situation. All we need now is a little bit of direction and a little bit of cooperation from governments. And we're in a good spot now to return to something that's better than the normal, the original normal. Let's get to the new normal, but a positive normal that is, you know, way above and beyond the, the existing normal that put us into the situation in the first place. Yeah, it's funny. I, I use that word new normal, meaning just taking words from the English language that I had and putting them together. Holy shit. When it came from, I guess, the extreme right voices in, in my radar, they lost their mind because I guess one one interpretation of that is that everyone wears masks the rest of their life and they keep six foot apart. No, new normal means exactly what you just said, that we learn from our mistakes, we have humility, and we make it better. You mentioned the environment. From what I understand, even the ozone layer started to close when all the, the cars stopped. So that's, you know, what an encouraging sign. All these people who have spent, you know, I've, I've talked about this on here before, but how many people spent an hour, two, three hours on a motorway or, or a freeway in, in traffic to do exactly what they realized they could do from their home now? How many, you know, how many, how much more family time, how much less emissions can we put into the world just from what we've learned? So if we go back to the way we, we were, then shame on us. We deserve to just be decimated from this planet because we're the most fucking, you know, ignorant species ever. Or we can actually have some humility, learn from this last year and be better and realize that the health of our nation should be the absolute pinnacle of any political movement. And the fact that our men and women are going to continue to die from obesity, diabetes, hypertension, strokes, autoimmune disease, you know, traffic accidents. I mean, our, our driving test here is a joke compared to back home. And we lose so many families. We just lost a horrific um, two, two women and three children in uh, where I used to work the other day. And I know that must have been horrendous for the family itself and the responders. There's so many things that we can do to save lives. And that's what we have to push. We have to get angry. We have to get educated and we have to demand that the, the health, the mental and physical health of our men, women and children is the absolute forefront of every single initiative that the, the politicians put out there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. We, we have an opportunity now. What are we going to do? Are we going to go back to our same old behaviors and just wait for the next pandemic? To wipe us out again or are we going to utilize this opportunity and you know, you know for, la for lack of a better way to put it are we going to be a, a phoenix from the flames and, and we are two of the greatest nations the world has ever known so you know we have the resources we have the level of education we have the level of hygiene uh, and nutrition available to us to think that we're not going to utilize this moving forward now after this ginormous terrifying wake-up call I think, as you, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. If we move forward from this and we don't take all of this into account and change our behaviour, then when the next pandemic comes along, you know, the the, the the likes of those of us who have been pushing for this are just going to point around and say, "Well, we told you so." You know, you experienced it last time. We lost millions and millions of people. You know, what 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 more do you want as a wake up call? So. And I, I'm positive. I'm positive about it. I'm optimistic that that we are going to come through this and there is going to be a, a ton of change. And don't get me wrong, there'll be a whole lot more work that needs to be done. But I do think we're going to come out of this more positive. I do think that we're going to see some really positive change in the next 12 months because we as the people are now completely aware 
of what we need to do and what we need to do moving forward. And I would hope, and I'm remaining optimistic, that we're going to hold governments accountable moving forward to put national health first and stop just talking about it for for, for press. Let's see some action. Let's see some action from governments. Let's have the environment changed so that we are in a better place to make better choices. And next time this pandemic comes around, you know, we may be like, you know, what what they're like in India now. You know, I've seen a clip two, three days ago from, a, a, I don't know if it was a, a soccer game or a baseball game, and people are out, packed out, no masks, no nothing, you know, because, you know, there's no, there's virtually no obesity in India. They eat well, they eat the vegetables. Let's hope that when the next pandemic comes around, we can, we can take the measures that we need to, and within a short amount of time, we can come back out and go, that wasn't all that. I'm glad we prepared. I'm glad we saved millions of lives. I'm glad we saved billions and billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars and pounds. You know, let's move forward. Let, 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 let's just focus on living life. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, I know there's some good news on the horizon. So when do you guys get to open again? Uh, 26 days, not that I'm counting. <laughs> and 17 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I can't yeah, wait because so we're, we're poised to come back. So I will have to you know, see if we can f- meet up at some point when I'm back over there because I think it'll be awesome to, to talk face to face. But it has been such an amazing conversation. I want to just grab some some quick closing questions from you, and then uh, I'll let you go after our three hour plus conversation. Um, <laughs> the first one I love to ask: Is there a book that you love to recommend? Now it can be related to what we've discussed, and it seems like we discussed so much today, or it can be completely unrelated. Ooh, I, I think I might disappoint you here. I think I really may disappoint you here. I okay, confession time. I have only read one book in the last 20 years, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, believe it or not. Um, and yes, I would recommend it. And no, not just because it's the only book that I've read. Um, I, have, I have ADHD, by the way, and I really do. I, I, I struggle, you know, fixating on a book. I'll get 30 pages in and I won't remember the last 29 pages. Uh, but I managed with, with Arnold's book. And the reason why I recommend it is because of his work ethic, not, not his bodybuilding or his, you know, his, his political career or his movie career. He, he advocates just, just getting stuck in, you know, but he, he educated himself. And from what I read, assuming that it's true, you know, he was taken on multiple university courses whilst working to, you know, to learn the English language better and to, you know, advance his, his education in the relative, in the relevant fields that he wanted to move forward. And he's seen great success in, everything that he's done, whether you like him or not, and whether you, you know, you, whether you like the elements of his life in politics or whatever else is irrelevant, he's come from nothing. He's put the work in and he's been successful in everything that he's done. Do you know what I mean? And that, that, that to me was inspirational just because he's come from, from nothing and he's put the hours in and he's, he's emphasized education in his life and, you know, he, he's seen great success. So, you know, Maybe it is a little biased. Well, of course it's biased. It's the only it's the only book that I've read, but I, I you know, I, I do like that, you know, that aspect to it. So, uh, and I'm sorry to disappoint that I'm not an avid book reader. No, no, no. Do you ever listen to books, audiobooks? I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a, a, a lot of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Cox, Joe Rogan. You know, who, who have a you know a wide variety of guests, and that's where I get the majority of my my information and knowledge. Uh, it's just through going down the YouTube hole and, and spending 10 hours, you know, getting to the 10th hour and being on a completely different subject to when I come in, you know, 10 hours earlier, you know, it's, it's so diverse. And that that's the best way that I find to learn is, is a mix of visuals and audio, even if it's just as simple as watching two people talk or, or you know, or just listening as I'm, as I'm out and about. And 
I suppose that is, you know, it's, it's the same as reading to some, to some respect, you're still taking in that information. So it works for me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I, I, I like to read it. I couldn't read when I was on shift. My brain just wouldn't work. But was, once I came off shift, um, and also along with, with some meditation that helped calm down the monkey mind, I was able to read them. But yeah, the, I like podcasts and more so than audiobooks as well, because I like that conversation. So I agree with you 100%. So what about a movie and or a documentary that you love? Oh, documentary would have to be um, Internet's Own Boy. Uh, a documentary on Aaron Swartz, who was one of the founders of Reddit. Uh, it follows his journey until, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, follows his, his journey and his activism up until the point where he, he took his own life because he was he was trying to make education, uh, trying to trying to trying to make ed- educational literature available to everybody. And and you know just just to touch on it really quickly, what he was doing was he was accessing public libraries, which were charging people for downloads at the time for books and literature that was meant to be publicly available, but you would have to pay I don't know say two two dollars per download. Um, as a, you know, you could still go in there and access it freely, but if you wanted it digitally, you had to pay per download. And, you know, every single, if you wanted this, this document, you pay $2. If I wanted to go and get the same documents, $2. And he thought that was a crime that, that, that it, there was being a price put on access to, you know, to education. And he basically hacked into the, the library systems and made them publicly available. This, this was, you know, it's public information that should have been public, but because of the way that he accessed the servers to then put it online, freely available, government went after him and they went after him hard, like really, really hard. He, he should have had a, a slap on the wrist, a slap on the wrist, and they were talking big sentences because they, they wanted to discourage what it was he was doing. And he was just trying to enable people to have free access to information around the world. You know, so they could better themselves and and better their their local economy and community through having access to this information. And that I think is one of the best documentaries, if not the best, I've ever watched in my entire life. And it's it's the full things on YouTube, as far as I'm aware. Now, I've never heard of it before, as well. You said Internet's own boy. Internet's own boy. Own yes. boy, beautiful. I have to watch that myself then. Brilliant. All right. Well, the next question is: There a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, medical profession, and associated professions of the world? Ooh. And it can be Ooh. anyone. That's just who the audience tends to be. UK or US? Doesn't matter. We're all one planet. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Ooh. Okay. Give me. Give me a moment. Let me think. Um. I mean, I would like to see somebody from the. Uh, I would like to see someone who's been part of the decision-making process to sit in front of someone like yourself, who's seen, you know, the reality of what's going on on the ground, and ex- and explain to you. And they may have a good explanation for this: why they've made the decisions that they have to suppress health and nutrition, and have a, a healthy conversation. They they would, of course, disagree with. I, I, I suspect some of the angles that we would come from. But I would like to see someone of that nature come forward who's been pro every decision made so far and have a conversation with you and allow themselves to be subject to scrutiny and for you to be able to ask the conversation in a a calm way and say, look, well, this is my feelings. Why didn't you do it this way? And I think that would be a really good conversation to have from somebody like yourself who is completely aware of the reality of the situation, who's seen it 
you know, on the ground in front of you over and over again for the, for the last 12 months. So nobody can question your integrity or authenticity or your knowledge or experience and just, just have a, have an open conversation that, that, that would be what I would like, not in a controversial way, but just to see what would come out of that conversation and to see whether they would look back and say, you know what, you're right. We could have handled this much better and we should have done X, Y, and Z. I agree with you or we didn't. And this is why, because as it stands, we, no one no one seems to be having that conversation on both sides in in a coherent calm way that isn't pointing fingers and throwing mud at each other so it, you know if if, uh, if we can fish someone out who's been very pro policy and uh put them in front of you i would be very very interested to see that happen yeah or even someone who was very very pro and then had an aha moment and and turned they might be a, a better guess i know someone that i'd like to get on we'll see i haven't reached out yet but the, our governor here in florida because i think he he did lead well and and each each slow unraveling of our lockdowns was after a statistical analysis so kind of what we were talking about and in theory, I believe statewide, we, we're not even mandated to wear masks and stuff, but then they, they did empower the counties and, and cities to do their own laws. So that's been interesting. I did see that. Yeah. So am I, am I, am I right in saying that the, sorry to interrupt. It's, um, am, am I right in saying that in Florida, you have had a very different response to what they've done in California, yet not seen proportionately much of, much of a difference? Yes. So as far as I understand it, California of, of lockdown, like, to a whole new extreme and then from what i hear just in the uk and then whether it's you know whether it's taken out of context or not i don't know florida being praised for its response and the difference between a, a, a total lockdown of absolutely everything versus you know what you what you guys have done in florida and you know the the difference proportionately you know in terms of you know x amount of the population you haven't been you haven't seen no dramatic increase in in deaths or infection rates no, compared um, to California. No, exactly. And, and we've been demonized, not not praised. I think Florida's definitely been de- oh, demonized, really? I think, by most of the other states. I would say so from from everyone that contacts me, asking me, you know, how how high is the, the pile of bodies in the street? Um, but uh, no, I mean, it, it's, it's just that. I think it, what's crazy to me is we have such a high retirement population here too. So if it was purely just age, then we should have bodies everywhere. Like we have a, a place just to the south of me called the Villages, a huge, huge retirement community. And I've got friends that work in the Villages Hospital. They're not overwhelmed, you know. So it's, I mean, the Miami area I think has had some, some, some spikes. But again, it's Miami as you've been there. It's a very densely populated, you know, diverse population. Um, but no, we're not, we're just not seeing that. So when you have that, when you have, let's say London, that's locked down, locked down, locked down, you're still getting all these spreads and people have the audacity. Oh, it's because Steve Mitchell at, at number 57 had a house party. That's why the whole of the, you know, <laughs> no, you fucking idiot. No, it's not, <laughs> you know, and the same with our schools. We opened up our schools and just to, you know, something I said right at the very beginning, our children live in the same part of that town, that city, whatever it is. That's why we have school zones. You know, these boundaries where your kid goes to this school. So your parents are already shopping at Sainsbury's or, you know, going to the petrol station. And, and it's exactly what we saw. Our kids went back to school. There was no real spike, you know. So a lot of these things that they, again, they were scaremongering. It just wasn't happening. And I'll still wear, you know, where there's a lot of stores that still ask us to wear masks. I'll still wear a mask because I'm not a dick. And if it freaks someone else out that I'm not, I'm, you know, compassionate to the point that I don't mind sticking a bit of cloth over my face for, you know, 10 minutes while I go to the shop. 
But as far as mandate, as far as impact, I think Florida's done incredibly well. And we haven't seen the spikes that that they're reporting from outside our state. So again, back to that journalism. I mean, I hate using that phrase, but fake news is absolutely right. It's it's no different than, you know, the sun and the mirror. You know, it's just sensationalized stories to keep other people scared. Meanwhile, if you actually pan into Florida, you know, we're 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 very close to pre-COVID, I think. I mean, you're seeing the the mask thing starting to phase out as people realize, okay, there's not even a spike. We're okay, you know. So I'm I'm excited to see what the next few months bring, and I hope we can be a leader in the U.S. to appease the other states and get them to follow. That'd be good to witness. Let's uh, let's definitely get the governor on, and let, let let's uh, let's make sure that happens, shall we? Yeah, a million percent. Be very be very interesting to hear his side of things. And as you say, if you, if you're being demonized in the U.S., I mean, I'm subject to confirmation bias on Twitter with the people that I do follow. So I've I've seen praise for Florida. But uh, like I say, I, I don't follow you know the, the 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 mainstream press too much over there. So it, it would be nice to see him come forward and give his side of uh, the story, so that it could be you know out there and we could see the shining example of what we should have done. And you know, you guys, you guys should be the the example moving forward. And maybe we can take some uh, some points out of that for you know, our plan for the next pandemic. Yeah, but we also have a very unhealthy population. So there needs to be discussions with that too. So anyway, um, so the last closing question before we just make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress when you're not banding gym owners together or working out? Uh, usually, usually either YouTube or rock climbing. I, I find rock climbing to be very therapeutic because it forces me to put my phone down. They didn't cover the rock faces with Vaseline so no one could rock climb during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we have some good indoor sensors. And, and you know, I, that is the only way that I can find that I can truly put my phone down and, and stay, have no choice but to touch it. And, you know, I, I'll be the first to admit I spend far too much time on my on my phone. Even when I get my screen, down, screen time down to the lowest it's ever been, I still feel like I spend too much time on there. So when you're climbing... It's not even an option. You can't you can't climb and play with your phone. Um, you know, if I hang out with friends, I, I shouldn't, but I can play with my phone. If I'm to, you know to do anything else, I can play with my phone. But if I go rock climbing, I can just switch off. Or go bouldering, I can just switch off, leave my phone there, and you know I can really get into the zone. And you know I can I can mingle with that community with a very uh, you know po- positive mindset. So they too open, I think, in another twenty six days. So you'll probably find me there the day after my own gym opens. I suspect. Beautiful. Well, for people listening, your gym specifically first. Anyone that's in your area, what's the name of the gym and where can they find it online so they can come visit? My own gym? Yes. My own gym is uh, Body Tech Whirl, which is you can find on Instagram. That's uh, B-O-D-Y-T-E-C-H Whirl, W-I-R-R-A-L. Beautiful. Now, if you want to reach out to you, follow you, where are the best places online for you personally? Definitely Instagram. Uh, my handle is Nick Capo, N-I-C-K-C-A-P-O underscore underscore. You'll uh, you'll find me, I'm sure. <laughs> I think so. Well, Nick, it's been <laughs> <laughs> it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much again. Thank you to Dai if he's listening. Um, but just having two voices, you know, across the Atlantic from each other, both in that that wellness space. You have your perspective in the UK. I have mine here, um, has, has been amazing to talk to you. It's been amazing to hear how 
just unifying a, a bunch of people that all were coming from a very, very altruistic place, just wanting to keep people moving, keep people healthy. How you, when you've unified in a positive way and you didn't demonize the police that were sent to enforce the ridiculous rules, but you did it in a, in a positive way that affected change that therefore protected gyms all over the UK because you guys stood your ground is a very important story for everyone to have heard because I know I forget Nick's last name there's a Nick in North Carolina here he's got a Greek last name he was a marine recon guy I think um, he had a similar thing happen there I think where, and I've seen gym owners even arrested I think in, in parts of the US so it's been such a, an important narrative, an important conversation. I just want to thank you. I mean, we've been chatting for almost three and a half hours, but that's how long it took to tell this particular story. And with, with where you came from and, and the challenges you had as a child to the incredible tribal element of parkour. And which, by the way, I'd love to get David or Sebastian on here one day. We'll have to see if we can make that work. Um, and then, you know, leading through this, this whole journey. I mean, it's been truly amazing. So thank you so much for being so generous and telling your story today. I, I really appreciate it, man, and I, and I I especially appreciate the amount of time that you've allocated to this. And it, it's a it's an ongoing struggle trying to get your message compressed into a, a two or three minute slot, you know, on TV or radio. So you know, having having a, a longer format conversation like this, you know, you can't be taken out of context. And it, it's given us the opportunity to to cover so much. And and I, I really really appreciate it, man. It's, it, it honestly has been my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we. Uh, since we had the first conversation about setting it up so I, I'm really happy with it and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it dude I really have thank you